0: Hey deserving listeners, I want to talk to you about Salvador Minuchin. He died recently and I've received a number of emails and other requests from other people to talk about Salvador Minuchin. Not only not only because he's a major figure in psychotherapy, particular fam- particularly family therapy, but he also died recently and it's you know, sort of customary to do a episode on a major figure if there's some kind of event like that. So that's what I'm going to do today. Um, Salvador Minuchin was one of the major role models for me. He he was just so inspiration inspirational to watch. He he has a lot of filmed demonstrations in in which he works with fa- actual families, actual clients, and he just has this really uh, attractive way of being a therapist. I think, particularly to trainees, because he wasn't afraid to be different as a therapist, and yet he was always professional. You know, Carl Whitaker also wasn't afraid of being different, but sometimes Carl Whitaker would not be very professional, in my opinion. But Salvador Minuchin sort of rode that line very well. He he was spontaneous he was kind of weird at times but he was professional you always knew that he was he was a therapist he always dressed in suits and he's always you know tidy even though he was being filmed in the 60s and 70s when a lot of people weren't Dressed nice or tidy at the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, all you have to do is watch a lot of these old videos, or you know, they would have been on film back then of demonstrations of therapy in the sixties and seventies to to see kind of interesting fashion trends. Incidentally, actually, um, whenever I show therapy sessions, even from like the nineties or the aughts, that my students always chuckle at the the hair and the <laughs> and the um. The fashion time. But anyway, Salvador Mushin was extremely clever as a as a therapist, and yet he wasn't arrogant. And he often in these demonstrations would have like 10 family members in the room. So just seeing him work was just so amazing, amazing because he, he what would happen is he would travel to a town and he'd be having a training with hundreds of people attending the training. And then he would ask someone to bring their family into the training and they would go to another room and there would be a closed circuit camera where everyone could watch the session in the other room. And these families would sign, you know, waivers, I assume, Uh, who knows if that was even around back then. But the family knew that they were being watched by hundreds of people in, in the room next door and... And so Minuchin would just, you know, waltz in real relaxed and and just proceed to have this amazing family therapy session, even though he knows he's being filmed, even though he knows people in the next room are watching and he's gonna have to justify his his actions later on in, in the day to all these hundreds of people. And he just would walk in and everything was just he was just super cool and and he did this over and over and over again, and, and it, it was it was just amazing to watch. Um, to me, uh, you, you got Salvador Minuchin, and you have Virginia Satir. These are that my grandparents of family therapy. Um, I, I consider Harry Stack Sullivan to to be a grandfather, and also Nathan Ackerman to be another great great grandfather, but. I, I don't. I don't think any other prominent figure really inspires me as much as Minuchin and Satir. I mean, I, I don't think there's any uh, recorded work of Sullivan or Ackerman because that was too long ago. I'm guessing anyway. But there's a fair amount of of filmed therapy sessions with actual clients with Minuchin and Satir, and I really can't think of any other prominent figures who inspire me more than they do. Uh, Whenever I watch them, I'm like, man, you know that is inspirational work, and the risks that they take, and how brave they are, and how they focus on the core of the issue so quickly, particularly Satir, really. you know, all the other figures don't inspire me the way that Minuchin and Satir do. Not Jay Haley, not Milton Erickson. not DeShazer, not Ensue, not Framo, not Watslowick, not Chloe Medanus, not Scharf, not White, not Bateson, not Whitaker. Well, like I said, maybe Whitaker. Not Nichols, not Swartz, not Lyman Wynn, not Don Jackson, not Murray Bowen, not Boscolo, not Napier, not Naj, not, uh, not Ackerman, because I haven't seen any of his um work. And um, Aponte, maybe Harry Aponte, his work is inspirational, but not nearly as much as Mnuchin and Satir. Anyway, so Mnuchin is really up there for me in terms of um, people that when I watch their sessions, I'm like, huh, that's that's good. Because there's a fair amount of sessions that I watch from prominent figures that I actually don't understand why they are doing the things to do. Like Sue Johnson is known for emotion focused therapy and when i watch her sessions i'm always like what like her her theory is great and i have been using it before i even knew what it was uh, i was using a form of attachment based therapy before that anyway and so i respect the theory and and i i respect a lot of its ideas and and a lot of the people who use it i think are using it really well but the demonstrations i've seen Sue Johnson uh film i'm always like whoa like this doesn't feel like the theory to me it feels like she's doing something else but um anyway so it's just she you know uh, Minuchin is just up there in terms of for me um and others love him too he he's the most famous family therapist in my opinion by far uh, today his model is probably the most popular model of family therapy it's used around the globe um and uh, you know the evidence of how much he's loved is when he would do these trainings, some of them were filmed and some of them you can actually watch on YouTube or on DVD. And it's amazing to see the crowds react to him. I mean, he was a God in family therapy. He, when, when he talked, people were riveted and, and when people asked him questions, you could just tell how, how much they worshiped this guy. It was, it was, it's interesting to watch. Um, and also uh, a very important thing and respectable thing is that he's well known for focusing on marginalized groups throughout his career, which was very different at the time. You know, while most therapists were recording, you know, filming their sessions with middle class, upper class people, Mnuchin was recording sessions with the poorest families in the United States and he was focusing on working with those kinds of clients imagine being famous for helping the most marginalized families around the world i mean how many therapists can say that harry aponte but you know he was a student of Mnuchin. so uh, so it's just you know when you think of freud you don't think oh throughout his career all he did was work with extremely poor immigrants you just don't think of that uh, with with freud you know you think of upper class people who could afford psychoanalysis and, uh, but Mnuchin is just well known for saying, look, there's this model called family therapy and, you know, family therapists, you really need to focus on working with marginalized groups because not only are they suffering from all the kinds of normal family dysfunctions, but they also are suffering from massive oppression from the outside and they, they need our help and they deserve our help. And, and not only did he just talk about it, but he actually did it. He actually, throughout his life, worked uh, you know, in the room with actual poor families and, and people of color. And so it's, it's an amazing thing to see where you, know, you would imagine that a lot of people, as they gain prominence, they would start to work with richer people because they could make more money. You know? so, so that's what I want to talk about today. But before I do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the podcast called Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also a professor at Antioch University Seattle in the couple and family therapy program in which we train licensed marriage and family therapists. Today, I'm going to talk about the history of Salvador Minuchin, which is actually quite interesting. Uh, According to my notes here, I'm guessing it'll take me probably a couple hours just to talk about the history. And then after that, I'm going to do a patron-only deep dive on Mnuchin's theory. So if you're listening to this on the regular feed, I'm going to talk about all the history for everyone. But then after that, I'm going to end and and only patrons can listen to uh, the theory on, on the deep dive. Okay, so let's get into the history here. Salvador Mnuchin, a lot of people called him Sal, by the way. His friends and family called him Sal. He was born in 1921 in San Salvador, Argentina. He is the first of three children. He reportedly had a, quote-unquote, strict and fair father. His father owned a small business in Argentina. He His mother was reportedly very protective of him, and she ran the household, He had a large extended family and he lived in a close-knit community of immigrant Russian Jews. So apparently a lot of Russian Jews moved to Argentina and they built a small community in San San Salvador, Argentina. The town was actually one quarter uh, immigrant Russian Jews. So, you know, a pretty substantial group in that town. However, uh, the anti-semitism was was rampant around the world and Argentina was no exception to that so in his community he definitely felt the anti-semitism in his community in 1930 when he was 9 years old his fa- his father lost the family business uh, as a result of the great depression and the family became poor very quickly And he had to, as evidence of this, he he had to help his mother sell produce to make money for the family, even though he was just nine years old. So then, the family business was rebuilt later, but this time his uncle was in charge, and the hierarchy of the family shifted from his father to his uncle. And when you know, um, when for example, when the uncle would come to dinner the uncle would displace his father at the head head, (coughs) at the head of the table so it's apparent to me that his early experiences in childhood would plant the seeds for his later theory because you can you can see the beginnings of his ideas of what a functional family should look like he had strict parents but they were also fair parents and he definitely promoted that idea with his families later there seems to be clear roles for people that, that adjust when needed, right? So his role as a nine-year-old shifted to one of helping the family earn money because that's what the family needed. And then when the family didn't need that anymore, his 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 role shifted back. Um, I, I'm sort of basing this on pretty limited information, but anyway. Um, he also had contact with his extended family, so this, this instilled a – an extended family approach to his, to his work later on. Mutual support was important. An understanding of the family's context, right? Anti-Semitism, poverty, an understanding of family setbacks when the Great Depression happened and his family became very poor. All of these things would seemingly plant the seeds for his later theory. Okay, skipping forward to 1940, at age 18, he finishes high school and he enters medical school. So a very interesting choice for a young Sal Mnuchin. 1944, still in medical school, during World War II, a right-wing military group overthrew the elected government of Argentina, and universities were placed under the control of the state under this military group. Mnuchin joined his classmates and resisted this state control. So they, they were like, no, we don't want the state involved because that will be bad for education. And Mnuchin was arrested by the authorities and spent three months in prison, which is uh, interesting. He was also expelled from the university because the state now ran the university, but he was readmitted later, thank God. So it's an interesting situation there. It's like, what would have happened if he was truly kicked out of medical school? Because he never would have likely become what he was if he didn't get his medical degree. In 1946, age 24, he graduates with his medical degree, and he decides to specialize in pediatrics, working with children. There was more political strife in Argentina. Also around this time, the state of Israel was created after World War II, right? and pretty quickly israel started fighting with its neighbors and had a lot of war problems right away so in 1948 <clears throat> menuchin joined the israeli army as a physician presumably this is where he discovered his his passion for psychiatry and psychotherapy because i'm guessing he noticed that because he was a he was a pediatrician right so he's working with children in israel and i'm guessing he noticed that a lot of the kids were traumatized and not only needed uh you know medical help but they also needed psychological help before um or sorry be, uh, after the war menuchin very quickly uh, went to new york to train as a child psychiatrist so you know very, so he's like a pediatrics physician and then he goes to israel and he works with all these Children and he's, he notices that they've been traumatized, and I've, you know he's like, "Huh, maybe I should really be looking into child psychiatry." So he goes to New York to study that, and he stud- studies under Nathan Ackerman, I think, which I said before is, is in my opinion, the great grandfather of family therapy. He uh, Minuchin worked with psychotic children in New York, and in New York he met Patricia Pitluck a developmental psychologist who he would later marry and be married to for a very long time. In 1951, at age 30, he went back to Israel to help out. He helped run a residential therapy agency or a number of residential therapy agencies for children who were suffering from trauma. The trauma was from the Holocaust, from World War II. So, you know, children who survived the the camps in in the, in the prisons in Germany, Nazi Germany, fled to Israel and were suffering from trauma. And so, Mnuchin helped out with those kids. And also, there are a number of children in Israel who had fled from other countries in Asia and the Middle East and were also traumatized. And so he helped them with that as well. And so this was when he learned how important it was to work with families. So he he noticed, like, these, these families have been through something together. It's not just this one kid. And he also realized that you have to take context into consideration when you're thinking about, quote-unquote, individual psychotherapy. Because remember at the time, and really even today, Whenever someone's depressed or anxious, we tend to think of it as an individual problem. Well, Minuchin, at the time, this is, is starting to form his ideas about family therapy. He's starting to say, like, you know, really, it's not just this one person. It's the whole family. The whole family needs to come into therapy. He, Minuchin, and his wife had a child, and they returned to the United States. This is in the 50s. And he wanted to study the ideas of Harry Stack Sullivan, who had just recently died in 1949. So Mnuchin was attracted to Sullivan. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm unclear why, but I'm guessing, why, I'm guessing I know why. Because Harry Stack Sullivan is, is one of my favorite early figures in psychoanalysis. Whenever I read Sullivan's ideas, it sounds like someone that would be writing today – so I'm guessing that's why Mnuchin went to New York to study the ideas of Harry Stack Sullivan at, at an institute that taught you know Sullivan's ideas because like, I think Sullivan might have taught there prior to passing away. Sullivan was very relational and and, and systemic and multicultural. Um, he was an American psycho- psychoanalyst and he was the child of Irish immigrants and at the time being being a child uh, of of Irish immigrants was akin to, you know, being African American in some ways. People were very hateful towards Irish Catholics in the early uh, 20th century and, and before then as well. Um, and he grew up in a town that, that was dominated by Protestants, American Protestants who hated Irish Catholics. Um, Sullivan is considered to be the founder of interpersonal psychodynamic therapy, which is my primary ther- therapy theory. Some It's related to intersubjectivity, relational therapy, object relations, etc. So, so Sullivan really is – is, uh, in, he's the great-grandfather of both, in my view, family therapy and interpersonal therapy, which are my two main integrated theories. Sullivan was way before his time – and to, even though Harry Stack Sullivan isn't considered as such, I consider him to be, to, in some respects, the very first family therapist. Some people would say Adler would be the very first family therapist, of which I, you know, wouldn't argue with you. Um, so, so if you go Adler Sullivan, um, these two are considered to be psychoanalysts, and they're they're not often they're not often included in family therapy history books, but I think they should be. I mean, when I first read Harry Stack Sullivan, I kept writing in the margins of my book, why doesn't family therapy claim this guy as our great-grandfather? He's amazing. Um, we claim Nathan Ackerman, who was also a psychoanalyst. Ackerman is often held up as uh, you know one of the early pioneers to start family therapy ideas. But why not Sullivan? It's, it's weird. Um Sullivan is is considered to be firmly within the field of psychoanalysis, which is fine. But again, when you read his writings, I, I think he could he he had he had definitely had one foot in psychoanalysis, but I think he had another foot firmly in what would later become family systems theory. Um in that he was really interested in relationships and attachment, and he was pretty vocal about rejecting. The Freudian classic, you know, the classic Freudian psychoanalytic ideas. So, so Minuchin wanted to study the ideas of Harry Stack Sullivan. He had already studied Ackerman, and and so he was attracted to Sullivan as well. And he joined the William Allenson White Institute in uh, New York to um, study the ideas of Sullivan. Okay, skipping forward to 1957. After completing his psychoanalytic training under the ideas of Sullivan, um, so remember he was first in medical school, and he chose to work with child medicine, and then he decided to work with child psychiatry, and now he <clears throat> and now he is trained as a as a psycho um, an analysis person, psychoanalyst, which was pretty much if pretty much if you wanted to work in psychotherapy at the time, that was the only option you had up until probably the 60s and 70s you know if if you wanted to become a psychotherapist you became a psychoanalysis a psychoanalyst because that's just that's just the way the profession was at the time so that's what he did but he but he chose the psychoanalytic training that was most related to what we would call today to be family systems theory and he uh, so he's done with his psychoanalytic training and he worked as a child psychiatrist at the at the Wiltswick school for delinquent boys. So this is a residential school for troubled boys. There, he learned that psychoanalysis was not very practical for the general population, you know, in which you have several hours of psycho of a uh, free association and this sort of thing. He, so So he and his colleagues at the Wiltzwick School for Delinquent Boys decided to break from psychoanalysis and try to develop a brand new theory for working with these families. And they noticed that when they successfully treated the child and sent the child back to their family, they noticed that the symptoms reemerged in that child. This is similar to other psychoanalysts at the time, like Murray Bowen and Naj and these people, they were noticing the same thing uh, in other areas. I don't know if they knew about each other, but there was a a very small realization in the field of psychotherapy where it was like, wait a second. You know, when we treat people, uh, we succeed. But then when we send them back to their family systems, all of our work goes away and they return to the exact same symptoms. Like, what's going on here? Around the same time, general systems theory from biology and cybernetics from computers were influencing the field of psychotherapy. Things, ideas like whole systems, feedback, and homeostasis and stuff. Um, you know, in it with with whole general systems theory, the idea it's complicated, but the idea is is that in there was a movement to reduce everything to atoms. Right? It's like it's you know we you know, what are the atoms that comprise things you have hydrogen and helium and oxygen and carbon. And there was this, there was this movement to, in order to, you know, science was really trying to reduce things to its fundamental parts as a way of trying to discover the, discover nature. But there were people in biology who were like, you know, that that's great. You know, sure. You know, study the atoms. But really, in order to understand biology, it seems like a better way, a better model is general systems theory, which is in which you understand the system of biology. For example, with a cell, if you have any knowledge of cellular biology, you know that in a typical cell, you have just tons of different things that are there. (laughs) You have DNA and RNA and mitochondria and the cell wall, and you have all these like you know, little molecules that you know, and proteins and amino acids. I might be using all my words wrong here, but the point is, is that when you really learn all the inner workings of a typical cell, you you realize that it is a mess of weirdness. And if you just understood it's atoms like nitrogen and oxygen and carbon and you know hydrogen, you you don't understand the cell. You have to understand how. And also, if you just understand DNA, that, that only gives you part of the picture. You really need to understand the whole system. You need, you need to understand RNA and, and the cell wall and then the proteins and how everything works together. And then you understand the cell. So that was a movement in biology. And then you had this movement in, in computers, early computer understanding, in, in in which the idea of cybernetics, in which you have a self-correcting system, the you know one of the things that they were working on at the time in the military was missiles that could drive themselves, you know missile because you know early on missiles you just fired them like the in World War II, um, uh, Hitler had these rockets that he would launch t- at at London. And the idea was like, look, you don't you don't have to have a plane to bomb London. You could just fire these rockets. Well, they were they were they were not guided. You just sort of guessed as to how to launch it to make it land where you wanted it to land. And it was and they would they would be wildly off at times. Well, what they were trying to find was how do you find a a a system using computers on a missile that can guide it toward your target. And one of the things that they uh, started to develop was feedback mechanisms. So, so it's like you you are headed, you know, the you, the missile is headed toward the target, and the computer on the missile figures out how to keep homeostasis, how to keep it how to keep it moving in toward the target. And so, if wind happens or um, you know s- something kind of pushes it off course there's a feedback mechanism that will push it back to, to to stability and keep it on target and so these ideas of cybernetics were also in the air and um, fam and psycho uh, analysts and people who interested in family therapy like um, like um, Salvador Minuchin started to look at systems theory and cybernetics as a way of trying to understand families. And so they're like, you know, we can't understand uh, people by t- taking one person, you know, in the same way you can't understand a cell by just looking at DNA. You have to look at the whole system. You have to look at the whole cell and all the components. You have to look at the whole family and all the people in the family. The other thing that was influencing early family therapy people was this idea of cybernetics and in computers and the idea of feedback mechanisms and the idea that when a system starts to uh, fall out of its normal course, there are feedback mechanisms to push it back to stability. And it was thought that family systems and their dysfunctions were partially or if, if not wholly uh, determined by these feedback mechanisms that kept the family in a, in a stable place, but in a dysfunctional stable place. And whenever you tried to push that family to a, to a better uh, state of functioning, the, the family system and, and the larger context of the culture and society had all these feedback mechanisms to push the family back to its state even though it's a dysfunctional state because systems like stability and homeostasis. Anyway, so, so around this time, it, a lot of people were being influenced or very a, a, a few number of early family therapy people were being influenced by this idea, also influenced by Nathan Ackerman and Harry Stack Sullivan and other people. And so this is early family therapy ideas, Murray, Bowen, Naj, Bateson, and also Minuchin and his colleagues. And Mnuchin also started to notice that there were family life stages, not just individual life stages. So normally, you know, you have individual life stages like when you're in preschool, you go through these kinds of things. When you become an adolescent, you go through puberty. And when you become an adult, you do these kinds of things. Well, Mnuchin and his colleagues started realizing, well, not only are there individual stages, but there's also family stages, there's the coupling phase between the parents. There's the you know having children. There's the um, late adulthood. You know, there's all these kinds of um, stages that they started to discover and and describe. Their method at the time at the at the Wiltzwick School in New York, you know, residential. Place for boys, troubled boys, and him and his colleagues. Their their method involved Minuchin or another psychiatrist performing a therapy session with a family, while other psychiatrists viewed the session through a one way mirror. So this was this was um, very influential on Minuchin for throughout his career and to family therapy. Minuchin and other people would observe their colleagues work with families through this one-way mirror. And this allowed them to learn techniques from each other and provide guidance to each other. I would love to do this, honestly, but uh, as, as a trainer myself and as a therapist myself, but it's it's often too strange for people to do. It's just and, – and it requires a fair amount of effort and facility. The facility has to have it, and it's, it's also, I think, kind of expensive because imagine – When you, you know, today when you go, so a family comes to me and works with me, well, they have to pay me, right? Or someone has to pay me, their insurance or an agency or, you know, someone's got to pay for my time. Well, imagine having to pay for five other therapists also (laughs) to sit behind a one-way mirror and watch the whole thing. You've just, you know, times your fee by six. So instead of $150 an hour, you're now at what? $1,200 Twelve hundred dollars or nine hundred dollars an hour, nine hundred dollars an hour as opposed to one hundred fifty dollars an hour. That's you know cost prohibitive. Plus, insurance companies would never pay for something like that because they have their own rules about stuff like that. So, so Minuchin, but apparently, so apparently they had funding to do this at the time, which is was wonderful for them. <laughs> so, after eight years of doing this at the Wiltzwick School for Boys. Minuchin and his colleagues, they developed their own theory, which would eventually be called structural family therapy, structural family therapy. Now, I just want to emphasize that, that Minuchin and his colleagues, their achievements cannot be overstated. The idea of treating the family instead of the individual is so strange, even today, that for them to have done this in the 50s is just incredible. Um, you know, and to to look at society and culture and marginalization as a cause of psychological problems is again it's that's avant-garde today, let alone in the fifties, right? You know, we're talking the conformist fifties. This is this is you know extremely cutting-edge stuff. Again, even for today, way before its time, um, which really just Drives me crazy that we're still in 2018, trying to convince our field not only to pay attention to the family system. You know, as a as a family therapist and an individual therapist, I absolutely focus on individual psychopathology and individual issues for sure. But I also look at the family system, and I also try to look at the, at society and culture. And this is was absolutely considered fringe at the time. And still is considered fringe, and it's just bizarre that even today uh, we, you know, the our, the vast majority in our field focus on the individual. Insurance companies focus on that. I mean, I, I have I have supervisees who um, are all of my supervisees struggle with paperwork because we still look at a file as being for one client, not for a family. Um, and in some ways, it's going backwards, in my opinion. It seems to be, it's I, again, it's just anecdotal, but it seems like our field is focusing even less on family systems and culture, and and even more on individuals, which is driving me crazy. Okay, so actually, let's let's, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's continue the history of Salvador Minuchin. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, we're going to talk about the history of Salvador Minuchin. I'm going to continue that. And then at the end of that, I'm going to talk about his theory of which is only for patrons. So um, get ready for that. All right. 1960s. We're, we're in the 1960s now. And Minuchin is in his forties. And this is the, uh, this is the, uh, the time, the decade in which Minuchin became very popular. So in the fifties, he was just a unknown guy, with working with some of his friends in New York at this at this at this school for boys and and they're they're you know breaking away from psychoanalysis and and trying to be more pragmatic and and slowly developing structural family therapy. Well, in the sixties, this is when he became really popular. He became popular for his theory, but really, in my opinion, mostly he became popular because of of his filmed sessions. He would film his sessions. Um, which was very easy to do because, again, they're behind a one-way mirror, right? And and there was this there was this culture of watching each other work, and so I, I'm guessing that led to, huh, well, why don't we just film these sessions, get the permission of the client, and show these at trainings to help people? Well, these films got out to the to other therapists and clinicians were fascinated by his film de- demonstrations. Minuchin, in these, like I was saying earlier, he he's just so easygoing and he's so likable, and he he's very honest about his observations about these families, and honestly, I I think his accent has has something to do with it. He, he has an Argentinian accent, and although you know he spoke English pretty well. Um, you know, it was, it was a noticeable accent, and I think he could get away with saying outrageous things to families because he had an accent. You, you know, when you hear someone having an accent, your expectations of their ability to speak English exactly well goes down, right? You're just like, well, you know, they're 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 probably going to screw up some words, no big deal. And so, Mnuchin could say these just outrageous things, and I think American families would hear this and they'd be like. Well, he just doesn't know how to sugarcoat his words because he's a foreigner. <laughs> Which might have been true, I don't know, but he he would say these just really outrageous things and I um and and it and it was very appealing uh, to therapists at the time and and was very appealing to me when I was being trained watching him in the 90s. You know, he he would just turn to families and be like, you know, so um So, is this how you want to be for the rest of your life? Is this, you know, is this cool? Do you you like to fight all the time? Is, you know, I mean, I'm not providing a very good example, but anyway, you just really have to watch it. I really encourage you to. There are videos on YouTube that you can watch. And if you're a part of a training program, they very likely have, you know, a dozen or so DVDs you can watch or online videos that are paid for. Now, having said all that, I think there was something a little nefarious about his popularity because, you know, therapists throughout history have, in my opinion, been insecure about their work and also have countertransference, right? Where you end up, especially with families, end up, you end up being kind of resentful or hurt and angry towards families you know because families are very stressful to work with especially if you're accustomed to working with individuals you know the individual person comes into therapy and complains about their spouse and their kids and their parents and it's very easy as a therapist to build up a lot of countertransference and anger and because you're being triangulated towards the family members and so it was very common for therapists i think even today to it, to to just have a bias for their client against their families, I find that to be a very hacky thing to do consciously. It's it's fine to have the countertransference, but it's another thing to go along with it, which I find a lot of therapists do, which really drives me crazy. But anyway, it's a a common thing, and so I think when Mnuch, so Mnuchin, so Minuchin, his approach to families, he was just so easygoing. And he would call families out on their crap. He would just point it out. It'd just be like, you know, he would turn to the kid and he'd be like, "So it looks like you're rebelling because um, you enjoy it," you know. Or he'd turn to the parents and he'd be like, "So it looks like you are kind of encouraging your kid to be rebellious." It, you know, what do you get out of your of your kid uh, being rebellious? What do you get out of that? And so Mnuchin would just would just confront people head-on. He wouldn't dance around things. He would just tell them. And I think that at the time, and even today, when therapists watch this, it, it gives them some sort of sick pleasure because Mnuchin is, in a sense, being passive-aggressive with his families. Now, of course, if you're in love with Minuchin, you're going to say, in no way is Minuchin being passive-aggressive. But, you know, you could make an argument for it sometimes. Or at the very least, you can make an argument that people watching would get some sort of passive-aggressive pleasure from watching a family get their just dessert. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, anyway, so I think that led – so anyway, he became very popular in the 60s from his, his demonstrations that were filmed – also in the 60s, early 60s, he travels to Palo Alto, which was a sort of mecca in addition to New York and Philadelphia. Palo Alto, California was a mecca for family therapy and he went there to work with Jay Haley. So he's 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 worked with Ackerman, he's he's taught in the ways of Sullivan and now he's going to work with the renowned Jay Haley in Palo Alto. At the famous Mental Research Institute, there there were many main figures of family therapy that had worked there and were working there at the time, which is just amazing to think about. Don Jackson, Paul Watzlawick, Chloe Medanis, Madanus, uh, Richard Fish, Jules Riskin, Virginia Satir, Artie Lang, Irvin Yellum, and others ha- had at some point done a stint there, in, including Salvador Minuchin. And Mnuchin and Jay Haley in Palo Alto became best friends. <laughs> um, Mnuchin wrote that Jay Haley was his most important teacher. He wrote that Jay Haley was a man who was, quote, forever pushing the envelope and, quote, testing the limits of new ideas. Mnuchin really appreciated this about Jay Haley, you know? So again, remember at the time, uh, Mnuchin still doesn't really have. A firm theory yet, he's still basically kind of developing it. And he goes to the Mecca in Palo Alto, and the renowned Jay Haley kind of gives him his his final push to really solidify his ideas. Mnuchin said that his friendship, his relationship with Jay Haley, was like the the relationship between Spock and Captain Kirk from Star Trek. Uh, now, remember, you know this is in the '60s, so. Trek was on TV at the time, not on reruns, which is just mind-blowing to me. And they apparently, or at least Mnuchin, apparently watched Star Trek at the time, which I think uh, makes me like Mnuchin even more. Jay Haley was like Spock. You know, he was very intellectual and logical, while Mnuchin was like Captain Kirk in that Mnuchin was very pragmatic and he took action. And, you know, so he saw the two of them like Spock and Kirk. (laughs) So... Jay Haley's model was known as or became known as strategic family therapy, and Minuchin's model became known as structural family therapy. And this was when, because they were besties, this is when structural and strategic really started to influence each other. And today I find structural and strategic to be very similar in, in practice. They have different theories and different um, foundations, but I find that it's hard for me to distinguish a structural family therapist from a strategic family therapist when I see them a- actually operating. And I think it's partially, if not wholly because Mnuchin and Jay Haley were such good friends and influenced each other's work so much. Okay. So 1965, he was appointed director of the Philadelphia child guidance clinic. So he goes to Philadelphia he you know uh, leaves Palo Alto um i'm not sure if he lived in Palo Alto or he just went there to study f- temporarily but anyway he goes to Philadelphia and he's appointed a director of the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic which is quite an honor you know to to be a director of a of a child clinic um again yet another major figure who found themselves in Philadelphia because Philadelphia uh, in addition to Palo Alto, was a, a major center for family therapy, similar to Naj, as I talked about in another deep dive. Jay Haley went with him, went with Mnuchin, and became one of Mnuchin's uh, staff members. So that'd be interesting, right? So so Mnuchin goes to Jay Haley to be trained, and look, and Mnuchin looks up to Jay Haley. And then when Mnuchin goes to Philadelphia, Jay Haley becomes under Mnuchin. Mnuchin is Jay Haley's boss at this point. So Mnuchin instantly noticed that most of the clients were people of color, and yet most of the staff were mostly white. So instantly, right away, Mnuchin set out to recruit people of color to work there to reflect the clientele. Again, this is way before its time, and we still struggle with that today. And there are there are uh, you know a, a variety of, of emphasis on this sort of thing you know some agencies try to do this try to recruit clinicians of color and some agencies don't at all and so it's interesting to see again this is 1965 and he's way before his time and didn't have to do that right I mean that it it, it adds to your stress he could have just gone with the status quo but he didn't for his training program, he, he – at this – so the, 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 this Philadelphia clinic not only treated families but was also a training program at – he had a training program at the clinic. And he recreated the situation he had with his colleagues at the Wiltzwick School for Boys in which there was a one-way mirror and there was live observation of other therapists. So he, he was like, oh, I, I really liked what we had with me and my colleagues back there. <clears throat> so I, I want to recreate that at this clinic now that I'm director. And so all the therapists were observed for every session. According according to sources that I saw, which I find to be hard to believe, but I guess possible, was that therapists, all family therapists, I think particularly novice therapists, were not only just observed some of the time, but were observed for every single session that they had, <laughs> which uh, by, by at least one supervisor or colleague and would provide uh, feedback to them. Um, I, I don't understand how they do this because, again, the funding problem. You're not just paying for one clinician. You're paying for two-plus f- clinicians for every session. So they must have just had and, – and these they were working with marginalized families that I assume were not paying for this or at least not very much paying for it. So they must have just had amazing grants or funding or something. The other thing that I just have to say is that I wonder if it was really boring, because there it's it's very exciting to work with families as a family therapist, but to watch family therapy all day long, I think I would get bored. There, there is just there's you know, that's why there's no interesting movies about therapy in general because uh, about ethical therapy, I'll say. Because if you – because I've often thought, like, wouldn't it be interesting – When my early career, I thought, man, someone should make a, a TV show or a movie about what therapy actually is like because it's really dramatic. So many things are happening. But then when I actually watch other people do therapy in which amazing things are happening, um, you realize from the outside watching it, it's very boring. And sometimes it can be very dramatic. But it's very brief, the drama. The, the tension and the excitement is in the room, and you have to be participating in that conversation and in that relationship to really feel that excitement. So to watch family therapy sessions all day long, which I'm guessing Mnuchin did – I'm guessing he you know watched hours of people doing therapy every day – I just commend him for not getting bored out of his mind. (laughs) Um, As someone who who does that occasionally, I just have to say uh, I commend him for that. Um, But, you know, he needed to train people because they didn't have family therapy training programs at the time. And so he had to completely rewire these people's brains regarding therapy. And so, um, so, you know, he dedicated himself to do that. So this was when Minuchin, with the help of his colleagues and Jay Haley, they transformed this small clinic in Philadelphia into a world-renowned facility for family therapy, which, which served mostly low-income families. So because of the publications that they were publishing and because of these live demonstrations they were sending out and all the people who were coming in and out there to be trained – this small little clinic uh, became this world-renowned family therapy center. In 1967, he published his, uh, one of his main works, his book called Families of the Slums, Families of the Slums. Now today that title wouldn't go over quite well politically, but uh, at the time that it did. He wrote about his experience at the Wiltswick School for Troubled Boys, he wrote about family therapy theory and practice these ideas would eventually be called structural family therapy but that label hadn't been applied yet he wrote in his book that uh, he claimed uh, so this is when he started to really formalize his ideas into written word and he was saying that that you know when you have a family system that is organized in a dysfunctional way that pathology results from that and the purpose of therapy is to change that dysfunctional family system pattern, but you need to disrupt it. You can't just try to change it sort of hap- or softly. You have to really sort of hit it hard to get them off kilter because only then can you disrupt the cybernetics and the feedback that promote homeostasis. This was a totally weird idea at, at, weird idea at the time and honestly is still weird today, which bothers me. His... But you know it should be pointed out that his that his ideas weren't completely new. you know this was after other main pioneers like Bateson and Ackerman and Bowen and Whitaker and Lyman Wynn and naj and and don jackson and, and other people like that, who had already been saying and writing about this and so to to, to some extent, Mnuchin was uh, sort of an early adopter of those ideas, shall we say because uh, he you know he went to Palo alto and sur- and studied under these people jay haley also and so he it's not like he invented these ideas but he was definitely a very early pioneer 1974 let's skip forward to that um so in this you know 60s early 70s he's you know gaining popularity he's publishing he's selling books he's giving trainings he's actually hands-on training with uh, family therapists So 1974, he's in his 50s now, and he publishes his book, Families and Family Therapy. Families and Family Therapy. It's his most famous book. I think I've owned multiple copies, like, I don't know, at least four copies of this book uh, because I just love buying books from my library, and there was a time when I just didn't have time to organize my library, and so I didn't realize until I finally just sat down and alphabetized all my books and organized all of them that I realized I had multiple copies of this book. And so I, um, you know, donated the, uh, copies that I had to my students, the extra ones. And so now I just have one copy on my shelf. 1975, after two decades, Minuchin stepped down as the director of the clinic in Philadelphia, but he continued to teach therapists because he, he made himself head of training at the center. So he, he no longer had to be the boss man. And instead, just had to be head of training, which I totally understand that move. By the way, it's it's uh, analogous to me because I became program director at at Antioch, and um, eventually just said, "Nah, I I think I just like teaching and practicing." So (laughs) I'm gonna because when you're director, you're a boss. You're an administrator. You have to schedule people. You have to go to budget meetings and to Uh, administration meetings and you talk to lawyers occasionally, you know, it's, it has, you know, more to do with administration and much less to do with teaching and much less to do with actual clinical practice. And so Mnuchin made this move when he was in his fifties. He, he said, nah, I don't want to be director anymore. I just want to teach. I want to, and I want to teach the teachers. And so that's what he did. And many people from around the globe, came to train with him at the center in Philadelphia in the 70s. You know, because this is before YouTube, before Skype, and before there was an abundance of family therapy training programs, like my training program at Antioch. You had to travel to study under someone, and so people would. They would travel from all over the world, go to Philadelphia, and train under him. Okay, skipping forward to the 1980s, he's now in his 60s, and... By this point, family therapy had really hit its stride and it was well known in the field of psychotherapy as a, as a up and coming form of psychotherapy. And structural family therapy had become the most popular form of family therapy. And there was a lot of research and there was a lot of training and a lot of People began, um, you know, training in other cities. They began, you know, developing other training programs. Graduate programs started cropping up to, to teach Mnuchin's ideas and, and other family therapy ideas. And again, structural family therapy as a term had been established by now, and it was the most popular of all the family therapies. 1981, Minuchin moved to New York from Philadelphia, and he established yet another institution called the Family Studies Institute. Where, so, so, again, he was working at this clinic as, a, as, a, as head of training, but he's like, you know what? I really just want to start my own institute. It's like my own organization. So he moved to New York and, and established the Family Studies Institute where he and his colleagues continued to teach his model of family therapy, structural family therapy. Later, when he retired in 1995, it was renamed the Mnuchin Center for Family, for the Family. Mnuchin Center for the Family. It's Kind of clumbersome. <laughs> it should just be called the Mnuchin Center, in my opinion. But anyway, um, and it's still open today, and you can go there today if you want, uh, in New York. So 20 as of 2018, the Mnuchin Center is still there, and you can still go there to be trained in Mnuchin's ways, which is awesome. And so... In 1981, he established this thing, and it's still around. 1983, for some reason, he moved to England and spent one year consulting there, moved back to New York in 1984, and again to his training center, which eventually became the Mnuchin Center. He continued to work on ways to help marginalize families. He did that throughout his career. He tried to motivate other clinicians to help marginalize people. He got grants for long-term projects to work with marginalized people in New York. And so it's really a wonderful testament to his to his altruism. 1996, this was when I was in graduate school studying his theory. He's now 75 years old, and he and his wife moved to Boston to be closer to their children and grandchildren. So at this point, he's like, eh, I think I want to slow down. I don't want to really run my institute anymore. Um, and this is when they changed the Institute to be called the Mnuchin Institute. And he moves to Boston to be closer to his children and grandchildren, but he continued to teach and supervise. He wasn't fully retired yet. Um, and he particularly supervised family therapists doing in-home therapy. So this is interesting because just a year later in 1997, I started doing in-home family therapy myself. I didn't know that he was interested in that. And it, I Absolutely understand his attraction to that because if you want to work with marginalized families, doing in-home work is really the best way to go because families, one, have a really hard time, you know, getting everyone there because you, you might have to get on the bus and it costs money. But also, like, there's just so much stress and, and you know, so many outside stressors that are uh, impinging on, on, on marginalized families that… Forcing them to pack themselves into a, into a bus and get themselves to your office is, is a bit of a hardship. Plus, as another thing, as an in-home therapist, you instantly realize the world that these marginalized families live in. Their neighborhoods are sometimes unsafe. They sometimes don't have adequate um, facilities in their, in the apartment they live in, uh, you know, et cetera. So, um, you know, Mnuchin was very interested in that. Okay. 1998. Again, he's in his he's in his late 70s here. This was um, when something interesting kind of happened and something that Mnuchin has become known for, which is interesting because he's in his late career at this point and has done so much great work. But for whatever reason, a lot of people when they think of Mnuchin, they think about this event that happened in 1998. So at the time in the late 90s post what what's called postmodern therapy, postmodern family therapy was becoming very popular among family therapists. Theories in this category are narrative therapy, solution focused therapy, uh, social constructionism, cultural relativism, feminism, cybernetics of cybernetics, etc. Um I remember this. I remember this movement in the late '90s. It was sort of like the new thing, the new kid on the block, shall we say, <laughs> to use parlance of the time. And I remember I, I didn't really understand it very well, but uh, I was just kind of sticking to my, the, my to my object relations systems. Uh, interpersonal theories myself, but I remember narrative therapy, solution-focused therapy becoming really popular among family therapists, and I remember being a little annoyed with them. So, I, so because Minuchin basically spoke out against this group, and and it's it's again a sort of a black mark on his career. But I just want to give some context to to it um, because I too remember being a little annoyed with these postmodernists because. Th- they were so adamant about how awesome their theory was. And they were so adamant about how stupid everyone else was for not being postmodern. Uh, I had a colleague at, in, in my very first job at the very first agency I worked at and I really liked him. I can't remember his name. I wish I remember his name because then I could kind of look him up on LinkedIn or something and connect with him. But he, he was staunchly postmodern. He was um, solution focused, I believe. And he and and I actually did co-therapy with him. We had clients together and so we would we would work side by side with clients and here I am doing my interpersonal psychodynamic systems work and he's doing his, which is a complete opposite theory to just straight up solution focused theory. And he he would often try to recruit me. It felt very cultish around the time postmodern, you know. When I had my my ideas of psychodynamic object relations and systems theory I didn't really care about anyone else believing the things I believed. I just didn't care. But a lot of the postmodern people, when you talk to them back then, and, and to some extent now, they they seem like they're trying to recruit you. <laughs> they're trying to convince you something, and and they're basically like, "Oh, really? Psychodynamic work, huh? Interesting that you're following that." Well, you know, uh, do you know you got to do what you got to do. Uh, <laughs> you know that kind of attitude. Whereas, you know, I would never. I would never look at a solution-focused person and be like, well, you know, interesting theory you're following there. And I would never do that. You know, everyone's entitled to be attracted to what they want to be attracted to. But anyway, so, you know, it's just anecdotal for me. I just remember being a little annoyed with it. Well, Minuchin was annoyed with it too, apparently, because he famously had criticism about postmodern therapy. And um, like I said, it was kind of a bad political move and it became sort of a black mark in his, in his late career. So in 1998... In an editorial in the Journal of of Marital and Family Therapy, which is a major journal in in systems theory, he although so so he he praised narrative therapy and solution focused therapy because it brought some good contributions to the field, but he also wrote that he didn't like postmodern therapies because they de-emphasized the importance of the therapist too much. You know, he he thought that the therapist needed to be in the room and needed to really be a part of the situation and postmodern therapies directly tried to de-emphasize the therapist's importance. Um, postmodern postmodern therapists really tried to even out the hierarchy, you know, because t- they were saying, what do we know? We don't know anything. No one knows anything. And, and how could a, how could a therapist claim to know things when no one knows anything? You know, Minuchin um, thought that this was denying our responsibility as therapists he also thought that postmodern therapies denied the experience of the family. He didn't think it was possible to change the cultural narrative of families. Now, I just want to say it's complicated and I could talk for hours and hours about this. You know, some of Mnuchin's um, thoughts are a bit of a straw man about postmodern therapy, but there is some truth to it as well, particularly the way some people practiced it. Um, so anyway. Now, in my opinion, Mnuchin was wrong to actually write about it in this way. post Postmodern writers, in my opinion, in family therapy have raised some very legitimate criticisms about all the therapies that we use in psychotherapy. You know, at the time and even today, therapists often deny their contributions to the system – you know, they will say like, well, there's the family system, there's the client, and then there's me. And I'm an, I'm I'm an objective observer of the client. I know what's happening. The client needs to be told what's happening. You know, it's a very top down thing. and it it comes from a perspective that the therapist has an objective hold on reality, which is according to postmodern ideas, ridiculous. And according to me, ridiculous. So, um, now, having said all that, I will say that I've basically, um, I don't go as far as postmodern, you know, you know, purists in that saying like, um, it's, "I know nothing," John Snow. <laughs> but I will say that everything I think has to be questioned severely because there's just no way to know that what I'm thinking is accurate or not. Um, but I think that you can balance out structural family therapy and postmodern ideas. But, but at the time, they were very polarized. Um. Also, all this criticism of psychotherapy was in line with contemporary feminism ideas. At times, you know, our, our patriarchal system promotes a very top-down mindset that is oppressive to everyone, especially women, and that needed to be questioned. And postmodernism was a movement that that questioned that from a feminist perspective. And also, there was a pretty big criticism from postmodernists and feminists that. Structural family therapy might be promoting male dominance and patriarchy in families by, by in a sense often being biased towards men being at the top of the hierarchy and being in control, and although that wasn't explicitly what Minuchin was teaching, that is often what was being promoted by structural family therapists apparently. So, so there was this. So uh, Minuchin published a couple editorials that were really quite famous. And I think uh, furthered the divide between postmodernists and and so-called non-postmodernists. And also, you know, he's in his late career, he's in his late 70s, and it just, it made him, it sort of tainted his overall career. I wish, personally, I wish he never would have said anything. I wish he would have just kept his ideas to himself on on this one, or at least tried to take a little bit more time to figure out uh, what was happening and and. And how to word it, and and really, you know, Minuchin definitely operated from a so-called modernist perspective of therapy. He definitely was a little antithetical to postmodern ideas. He wasn't any different from anyone else at the time, by the way. So it's not like he was particular. He was he was totally right, standard in the middle of psychotherapy at the time. But you know the way he talked. He definitely talked as if he knew what was happening in the family. He definitely talked as if he had, had an objective hold on reality. Um, there was there wasn't enough emphasis on countertransference, in my opinion. And following in in his example, a lot of structural family therapists, in my opinion, when I have observed structural family therapists, they often come across as is at least a little, if not a lot, judgmental of families, as if the therapist starts with this assumption that the family is wrong, and that the therapist knows how the family should be acting. Um, but again, this is how everyone is acting back then, and and that was honestly what trainees were looking for. You know, that the field was looking toward major figures to provide them with confidence and security in the knowledge that our field has something to say and and is scientific, so to speak. Um, So there's that. So I think there's a number of factors that contributed to uh, Salvador Mnuchin's blunder at this point. Number one, when he wrote this, he was in his late seventies and, and I don't want to be ageist, but I just want to say that at the time, you know, uh, it's, at, in your late 70s, it's not like you're super open to new ideas, right? You, you've had decades of experience that tell you one thing, and then all of a sudden this, this other thing comes along, and you're just like, eh, I don't know. So so I think that's one factor. Number two, you know, a, a, a strange new radical theory emerges, and it completely is designed to dismantle the entire field of psychotherapy, and Taken to its extreme, which some postmodernists did, they basically were saying Psycho- the entire field of psychotherapy is a sham. You know, uh, based on our ideas, we, we make a compelling argument that therapists know nothing and they're just tricking themselves into thinking they think th- into thinking they know things. And many of these postmodernists were aggressively attacking all therapies, most notably Minuchin's theory. Because it was mainly within family therapy, the postmodernists were had, had a big following in the family therapy world. And since Minuchin was at the top of the of of that pyramid, the postmodernists attacked Minuchin a lot. And this is a theory that Minuchin had been working on his entire life. And they were basically saying that Minuchin's theory was completely false and useless. Um, and and they still do. Some of them still do. Number three, I'm guessing that Minuchin was surrounded by a lot of yes people, and so Minuchin. As he started to complain about postmodernism, I'm guessing that a lot of his followers were like, "Yeah, you're right, Mnuchin. You're, you know." So it's just a it's just speculation. Number four, I'm guessing that he just didn't get postmodernist ideas, and he wrote about it without thinking about it further. I mean, some of his writing seems to um, show that that he didn't really understand what it meant. Really, uh, again, just a the speculation there. He was a smart guy, but. Uh, it's a hard thing to grasp, particularly if you're a little hostile to the ideas. And number five, I'm guessing that he thought it was a fad and that it would die out. It was it was new. It, there was a very small group of people that were that were uh, you know purists about it. And I'm just thinking he thought, well, you know, might as well stamp this out because it's another. And the other thing is, I'm thinking is like how many other random theories sort of cropped up that Mnuchin spoke out against that were fads. Uh, Because you've got to figure there had to have been a lot of fads that came out in his lifetime. And I'm thinking just like, eh, this is another stupid fad. Uh, Yeah, sure. I'll I'll speak out against it. You know, the other thing was, was that it wasn't like Mnuchin was alone in this criticism. There were a lot of people that were, um, have, you know, the fact that they published this in a journal uh, shows that some people thought this voice needed to be heard. But anyway. So this is a sort of black mark on his reputation, particularly among the so-called postmodern people. By the way, I, as I've said before, I don't like the term postmodern uh, to be used this way because when you actually study postmodernism as a philosophy, it's it's much more complicated and, and different than that. So whenever I categorize these theories, I use the term brief or collaborative, because I think particularly collaborative, I think collaborative definitely um, encapsulates... It's essence, and I, I and we don't have to call upon the fancy word of postmodernism to to describe it. Now, having said all that, Mnuchin, he absolutely did talk about respecting the family. Even though you definitely could call his theory a modernist theory, he definitely talked about making the family um, – try, really trying to understand the family's culture and not making assumptions about it. He talked about how therapists needed to revise their theories and their hypotheses and not fall in love with their initial ideas about what's happening. He talked about how systems of power outside the family affected things. So in many ways, he was already basically postmodern integrated before that was a thing. So, okay. All right. Skipping forward to 2004, he's now 83 years old. He moves to Florida to retire, but he continued teaching and writing. (laughs) So it's like he's doing all these moves, these slow moves towards retirement, but you know he keeps holding on to teaching and writing. And honestly, I hope that's what my career is like in my 80s. I would love to slow down and but continue teaching and, and retiring. And I see a lot of my colleagues at Antioch doing this. They will cut back on their hours at Antioch. They'll cut back on their hours and their practice, but they never can really let go, even if they're in their mid-80s. Um, all right, 2013, age 92. He criticized the movement in family therapy training to teach theory over experiential learning. So he wanted novice therapist trainees to have more experiences with one-way mirrors like he did in his training programs and because what he was observing was a lot of training programs in marriage and family therapy were focusing on reading a lot of stuff, on writing papers and other academic work. And he was like, look... Being a good family therapist means – to become a good family therapist, you have to do family therapy and you have to be observed and you have to be – you have to get feedback from other therapists. Um, And honestly, I totally agree with Mnuchin on this. So so this is recent. Again, this is just five years ago. He was criticizing our field for this. Um, And in my program, I have to say we're guilty of that to some extent. I mean we definitely have a lot of experiential training. And in my guess, we have more than – Uh, not my guess. Actually, I know um, we're at least at par with other training programs, but I I do know we actually have more experiential learning than other institutions do. You know, it's generally avoided in training programs and in master's programs and doctoral programs because it's terrifying to both teachers and students because it's much easier to lecture or watch a movie or have people talk about, you know, their reactions to a reading or assign a a paper to write or something; those are those are anxiety provoking. Anyway, but for people to actually uh, be in a, a, a observation fishbowl tank. Students are terrified of that. I was terrified of it when I was a student, you know, to sit, I, w- I was terrified it as a teacher when I would actually have to demonstrate therapy in my early teaching career and have students watch me do therapy. It was terrifying to me. It's not terrifying to me anymore, but it was back in the day. And so I think that's a reason why people avoid it. It's just like, ah, that's scary. <laughs> um, also, it's totally not emphasized by accreditors and state licensing board. The, the, it, it's, It's... They're, they're, they've made some adjustments to the accreditors and the state licensing boards to add direct observation to their requirements, but it's not um, emphasized enough. Let's just put it that way. Also, it would add a lot of expense. A lot of money would have to be spent on that because in order to observe someone, you, you presumably someone has to be compensated to do that, and that's pretty expensive. You know, A typical supervisor – will meet with their supervisee once a, once a week for an hour. So you only have to pay the supervisor for one hour a week. Well, to provide direct observation the way that Mnuchin did it, you would, you would have to have at least one supervisor paid to observe multiple therapists over multiple hours, which would just be extremely expensive in today's world. Uh, also, facilities would have to be built. I mean, you'd have to have rooms with one-way mirrors that's expensive, right? Every therapy office would have to have some abilities that people from the outside could could watch in. And that's really expensive and annoying to um, people who own facilities. They're just like, really? You need us to build a one-way mirror? Really? Like, come on. And we actually had one in our old building in Antioch, which we just moved out of a year ago. And I remember when we built it uh, in 98, 97, you know, the whole idea, Paul David, who my mentor, who was in charge of the pro family therapy program at the time, and was for many years, he I think built that one-way mirror thing because he wanted to follow in Minuchin's example and others. But we never used it, to my knowledge, or very rarely, or only in the beginning, a couple times, because it's a total pain in the butt. You know, at the university, it because um, it, there's no support for this. And no funding for it. We would have to, if from my memory, what Paul David did in the beginning was he's like, okay, people at their internship will bring a client from their internship agency to the university, and then Paul and other people will observe this intern student working with this family behind a one-way mirror. You know, any, any clinician listening out there knows that that's extremely logistically difficult. One, you have to find a family who's willing to do it. Two, you have to get the family to the university. Three, the agency has to sign off on that. The agency has to be like, sure, yeah, take a family out of our agency and go to this random university. You know, it's just this red tape nightmare. And so um, so anyway, Mnuchin, at the age of 92, just five years ago, was writing and, and criticizing the fact that we don't do that anymore, um, which is... It's interesting he was still relevant at the age of 92 okay so skipping forward to 2017 he died at the age of 97ish and he died in he died on october 30th 2017 so not that long ago in florida from complications from parkinsons so that's his life Argentina, big family, political strife, Israel, war, children being traumatized, the United States, marginalized children and their families, Nathan Ackerman, New York, Harry Stack Sullivan, Philadelphia. He developed structural family therapy with his colleagues, goes to Palo Alto, Jay Haley, Besties. His theory and uh, film den- his film demonstrations become really popular in the 60s. He tours around the world, aspiring people to focus on the family. He helps create the entire profession of marriage and family therapy. Marriage and family therapy becomes an actual separate profession that's separate from psychology and counseling and social work. Um, in the 90s, I, I go to an open house at Antioch to learn more about the master's program, and I learn about marriage and family therapy, and am convinced by Paul David to become a marriage and family therapist because I... I absolutely want to work with individuals, but I'm also very compelled by the idea of working with couples and families. I get trained as an, as an MFT. I get trained in structural family therapy. I learn about Mnuchin. I watch his, his tapes in the 90s. I eventually teach his theory to students after I graduate, and then I develop a podcast, and people email me to talk about Minuchin, and I finally get the time to do that. I do a deep dive on him and his theory, and here we are. So let's talk about his theory. Uh, I'm going to do a deep dive on Salvador Minuchin's theory, structural family therapy. I'm going to talk about why we why it's so popular. What did he find to be useful when he was working with families? Why did he find it useful? How do people use structural family ther- theory today? What are the different concepts in it? Um, and, and I have a lot of things to say about this because – a number of his ideas have been completely altered and distorted. Things like joining and reframing are very popular words in family therapy. And in my experience, 99% of the time, people don't know what they actually mean. And th- to know what they actually mean is to know what family therapy is. And to distort the way people distort these words is basically antithetical to family therapy in some ways. So, anyway, I'm going to talk about that. Um, why do people have problems in their relationships according to structural family therapy, which I think structural family therapy definitely provides answers as to why some people suffer in their life and why some people suffer in their relationships with the people that they're in a relationship with. And I'm also going to talk about the, the practice, you know, how, how do structural family therapists actually help people? So, uh, as I said before, the rest of this episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're, lis- if you're listening to this now and you're not a patron yet, this episode is going to end now. If you want to hear the full episode in which I go into the theory, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to this episode and hundreds of other patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics like like Mnuchin and, and other people and other theories and ideas and everything. And when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes toward various charities that we Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Super cool of you to become a patron of this humble little podcast here in Seattle, Washington. Okay, let's talk about structural family therapy in detail. Can't wait to talk about this because I love this kind of stuff. (laughs) And I have a lot of things to say about it. So let's get into it. Um, by the way, so I've been talking about Salvador Mnuchin this whole time, but really, as I th- think I mentioned before, there are several, several other major figures who have contributed to the quote-unquote founding of structural family therapy, including Harry Aponte, Marianne Walters, Stephen Greenstein, Jay Haley, as I talked about, Bernice Rossman, Charles Fishman, and others. It just so happens that, for whatever reason, we need a major figure to hold up, and Salvador Minuchin is that person. You know, it's sort of like thinking that Apple was all about um, Steve Jobs. You know, what about Wozniak? What about all the other countless people who contributed, especially early on, to the formation and ideas of what we now consider to be Apple? It's very similar to that. Uh, it's sort of like another thing uh, that people will often reduce things to is that the 60s was all about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones or something. But for people who grew up in the 60s, of which I did not, but I imagine it's true that, you know, the Beatles and the Stones were there, but there were several other bands who, and several other cultural figures who contributed to what they considered to be the 60s when they were in it. And I'm actually starting to see that today. Uh, There's a, um, as I get older, there's a lot of younger people who are contributing majorly to our society and our understanding of things. You know, people in their 20s and 30s are now making podcasts and their journalists and their CEOs and this sort of thing and it's funny to hear the way that they talk about the 80s and the 70s they will reduce things to these extremely simplistic ways and i'm just thinking like you know it, and i'm sure the things that i say about things that i didn't experience is similar so we just have to remember that Salvador Minuchin was just one person he's perhaps the most charismatic and he definitely contributed a lot. So he can, you know, we can definitely turn to him as one of the founders, but, uh, but even he would, in his books would talk about how the fact that, you know, he couldn't have done what he did without the mentorship and the collegial work with several other people. And there were other people who authored books about sexual family therapy and, and with him and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So just remember that. Um, um, so as I've been saying, structural family therapy is probably the most popular family therapy approach throughout the history of family therapy. I was actually just having lunch with Michael Drain from the Unpopular P- Culture podcast, and we were just talking about um, what we were up to with our different podcasts. And I was talking about how I had just done an episode on Naj, and he was like, you know who's Naj I don't even I don't know you know what's that and then I was like oh well most people don't know him but but I'm also doing an episode on Salvador Minuchin and he was like oh Minuchin definitely know that guy so even though in the family therapy world most family therapists are trained in the ways of Minuchin and Naj meaning structural family therapy and and also contextual family therapy uh minuchin and and structural family therapy are way more popular it's the most popular model by far um, in my experience it's probably popular because it's not hard to grasp and salvador minuchin is fun to watch in his live demonstrations it's not hard to understand uh because there the some of the other family therapies are actually really difficult to understand like postmodern approaches when you really get into them it's like it's 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 a it's a paradigm shift solution focused uh, is often really misunderstood uh, narrative therapy is often really misunderstood Satir and Whitaker don't even have a theory, really. You just have to kind of watch them, and 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 that's hard. And also, Satir and Whitaker can be kind of off-putting, especially to today's audiences, because you know, back in the '60s and '70s, I think people were more open, especially in the in the therapy world, to um, odd happenings in therapy. Whereas today, I think people are a little bit more buttoned up and professional. So anyway, structural family therapy is right down the middle and it, and it really appeals, I think, to common notions in culture for better or for worse, which I'll get into. To me, it's often simplified to the point of ridiculous, really. I mean, it's actually structural family therapy is actually really complicated because it has to do with systemic ideas and systems thinking, which is extremely difficult to understand. You know, uh, I, I barely grasp it and. With my graduate students and recent grads, it's the last thing that they master. I there I have my interns, my supervisees, write a I don't know it's something like twenty or thirty pages of a write up. So every quarter I have them do a full write up on a particular family ther- family client they're working with, and this this case conceptualization has has I don't know I'm guessing thirty to forty different sections of clinical assessment and treatment planning and assessment of their work and countertransference assessment and just, you know, and systemic assessment and just all these different things. And the areas most 95% of the, of these uh, sections they master pretty quickly. They, they, you know, they become very good at knowing how to analyze their countertransference, knowing how to analyze their transcripts, knowing how to provide a mental status exam, how to diagnose. Although diagnosing is sometimes nuanced, but, but you know, there's several sections that I just sort of breeze past, and I'm like, okay, looks good, looks good, looks good. And then when I get to their systemic section, in terms of demonstrating that they understand systemic thinking. I have rarely seen a student master that even by the time they graduate. It is it's just really difficult. So to think that structural family therapy is easy to understand is is really silly. And often people will pick the most easiest to understand aspects of structural family therapy and hold that up as structural family therapy and that's a big mistake which I'll get into in a second um for for example they often will uh, reduce structural family therapy to uh, a practice in which you tell parents how to parent and you tell parents that there there are quote unquote appropriate boundaries and inappropriate boundaries in families you know there's there's a good way to be a parent and there's a bad way to be a parent and that is just a really uh, miss, gross misunderstanding of systemic family therapy and in general and also structural family therapy. it's really not like that. but more on that later. okay, so in general, structural family therapy looks at patterns of interactions that create problems within family systems. So again it it looks at patterns of interaction. That's important to understand, which I'll, I'll continually be emphasizing through this that patterns of interaction, routines of interaction will create problems. In family systems and create pathology within individuals like depression, anxiety, and other problems. Mental health issues are viewed as a symptom of the dysfunctional family process. And the focus of treatment is on changing the family structure and process, not on treating individual pathology. Therapists try to improve communication between the family members. They try to improve interactions among the family members, particularly by making boundaries more healthy and processes more healthy. So let's look into again, I've already kind of talked about it, but to be more specific, how do structural family therapists view pathology? This is important to understand about any theory. You know, how does narrative family therapy see pathology? Meaning, how do they understand depression, anxiety? Um, adjustment problems, grief problems, um, acting out problems. You know ha- how do how do these different theories? How does cognitive therapy see depression? You know these are all important. I find that depression is the easiest stand-in as a pathology across the different theories, because if you say like schizophrenia, it's like well, you know, uh, severe mental illness, psych- psychosis for many people, regardless of theory, is seen as a biological problem, you know. But depression it can be a biological issue, but it often is not. It often is related to one's environment, their you know, one's relationships, or one's thinking, as in cognitive therapy, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, how, how does structural family therapy see depression? Structural family therapists... Are more concerned with what they're more concerned with what maintains the pathology rather than what causes the pathology. So, a structural family therapist is like, Well, I don't really care why you're depressed. I just want to know, I, I don't really care where it began. You know, maybe the, you, the depression started five years ago. When your grandma died, I don't really care about that. I mean, I care in terms of as a human to human, but as a clinician, I don't really care. What I care about is why the depression is maintaining itself right now. We we can't change the past. We can't change the fact that your grandma died, but we can change the now, the here and now. So. Structural family therapists, as with most family therapies, they're very interested in right now. Let's we we can talk about the past for sure, but let's look at the exact processes of your current environment and your relationships right now. Minuchin believed that pathology can be caused by individual factors, systemic factors, and societal factors. This is also a very important thing to remember. Um, that I actually have to remind myself is that. Solution-focused therapists and Mnuchin himself actually would say, look, sometimes depression is caused by individual factors. Uh, Pathology isn't always a systemic idea. So we allow for that. Sometimes, you know, depression is caused by the way someone thinks and looking at a family system isn't the best way to go about it. Harry Aponte would say the same thing in interviews. Also – to include societal factors, not just individual factors or family systems factors, but also societal factors. Sometimes you are going to be depressed because of the way society is treating you, so that's important too. Also, structures that can't deal effectively with stressors like transition, grief, anxiety, uh, feelings, hurt, etc. Um, these uh, are structures that are, um, become bad at dealing with those things. So, in other words, like when you are family loses a pet. So a pet dies in your family. Well, it's a transition there's, and it's a stressor and a lot of things, a lot of needs have to be met. People have needs to talk about it. People have needs to not talk about it. People have needs to help each other. People have needs to ask for help and all, all these kinds of things. There's all these issues that come up around when you lose a, a pet to death and the structures or the processes involved in, that, are, that are routine in the family can either help the situation or not help the situation. So structures and routines like boundaries or hierarchies or coalitions or processes or, or roles in the family, uh, put simply. Okay, so that's pathology. Let's look, at, let's look at structure now. So this is obviously the most important concept in structural family therapy. It's in the very name itself. What is structure? I've already talked about it a little bit, but let's get into it in more depth. What exactly are we talking about when we're talking about structure? Well, it's often simplified to hierarchy and rules and roles. Family therapists often use the word structure, structure as a word for a consistent and responsive parenting style. You know, they'll they'll say something like, this family needs more structure. And when they say that, what, what they're meaning is the parents need to need to have a more consistent parenting style. You know, these children need more structure and it's fine for non family therapists to use that language because they don't, they're not in the family therapy world, but for a family therapist to use the word structure in that way really is distressing to me because this, this oversimplification to the point of completely missing the point actually is demeaning to our field and harmful to clients, in my opinion, you know the the idea of structure is way more complicated than that. Structure is the unspoken and invisible routines that dictate how we behave in our system. So, so it's the, it's unspoken rules or unspoken routines or unspoken predictable sequences of behavior. And I'll give some examples of this. and And it's often invisible to people. They often don't notice these routines, you know, when you ask people like, so tell me what's the typical way that your family deals with a stressor, you know, like, like someone is having a medical emergency, or not, I mean, it's a little too severe, or, you know, uh, the holidays are coming up, and there are lots of different, you know, there, and, and you, there's five different homes that you could have your, your holiday party at. Um, how does your family deal with um, that negotiation of where the party should be at? Or, you know, uh, your aunt is really good at cooking a, the Christmas ham, but your grandma loves actually making the Christmas ham but isn't as good as your aunt at it how does your family figure out what to do there both of them want to do the christmas ham and other people have ideas about who should do the christmas ham and how does your family work that out you know when i ask questions like that to people uh, very simple questions in my view they will not have an answer they'll be like uh, i don't know we just sort of deal with it or I, don't know. I never really thought about it or they'll say like well you know usually People just figured out, or usually my mom just you know tells everyone what to do, and I'm like, well, okay, that's a beginning, but what exactly does your mom do when she's trying to tell other people what to do? And they be like, uh, I don't know, she just tells people what to do, and I'm like, no, 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 tell me exactly what your mom does. And I was like, oh well, uh, my mom will, she'll bring it up around you know uh, October sometime over an email. She'll, I think she emails maybe my aunt about it. And then, you know, so when you get micro on that, that's when you start understanding the family structure. And it's hard to take note of that because why would you? It's, it's too much detail. Why would we, why would we write stuff like that down? But when there's a problem in a family, then that's necessary sometimes. So now I will say that structure is uh related to boundaries and hierarchy for sure. But hierarchy meaning like who is in charge um, and boundaries, which I'll get into later, um, all these are very important to structure. But really hierarchy and boundaries are just the skeleton of the structure. They just provide the the sort of the skeleton upon which all of the organs and the flesh are attached to, and the organs and the flesh are the processes, the way we communicate, the sequences of events, the way in which we, uh, you know, work these things out. Okay, so, so again, structure, when you think the word structure, think routines, think process, think behavioral sequences. And so let me provide some examples here. So, so imagine you're at work, you yourself are at work. I want you to really think about this. You're at work or you're at school or whatever you do outside of your house and you're you, you have a spouse a partner you're uh, you know at home and you're at work and you have a meeting with your boss or someone at work or someone at your school or whatever some some kind of meeting and it goes really badly like say your boss she blames you for something you didn't do she just you know someone's just like man You really screwed it up. I can't believe you did this. Like, how dare you? You really need to look, you know, you could get fired for this or we could kick you out of school for this or whatever it is. And so it's, you know, and you try to provide an explanation and and they won't listen. And it's pretty stressful. You know, you you have a pretty, you know, big um, visceral response in your body, a fight or flight response. Your adrenaline's pumping. Yeah, you, you go to your car. You're driving home from work. You're pretty distressed. You're just like, oh my god, like that was really scary. And your your mind is racing. You know, all these different things are running through your head. Like, you know, what am I gonna do? Should I should I quit? Should I, what should I say? You know, I can't believe that she said that. That was complete bullshit. You know, everyone's treating me like crap around here, and I deserve better. You know, all these thoughts just running through your head. And you enter your house, and your spouse instantly says, as soon as you walk in the door, you haven't even taken off your coat yet and your spouse says i can't believe that you're late i can't believe that you're late from work I, you're always late you all you know you just you, you just refuse to come home on time and the kids have been driving me crazy and i need you to take care of them or you know insert the dogs or the cats or the whatever whatever is in your life you know i need you to deal with this right now uh, because I need to get out of the house because I, I need to go out with my friends. I need to get out of the house. I need you to take over. I'm going to go out with my, I'm going to go out with my friends. And so, um, you know, I, and I've been waiting for you to come home. I can't believe that you're late. Okay. So what do you do? So you're in this situation, you're really distressed, you're, you're very, uh, tired and you just want to relax And you come home and your spouse just instantly starts yelling at you and accusing you of something. They're upset at you. They're blaming you for something. And they need you to take over and start a new stressful job or some kind of requirement of you. And you don't get to get any support. You were kind of looking forward to just kicking back at home and maybe venting to your spouse and just maybe having a drink and just relaxing at home. Uh, but you can't now. Your spouse is now yelling at you. Now you're just like, ah, oh, everyone's yelling at me and I don't get a chance to relax and no one's listening to me. My spouse, can't my spouse tell that I'm stressed out? Okay, so what do you do? You know, you have needs. You have needs to relax. You you want someone to listen to you about your day and you want your spouse to support you. But your spouse has needs too, you know. They've been working hard all day with the kids or whatever, the, but something is stressing them out. They They've had a hard day too. And they need you to help them with something right away. Uh, so, so, you know, now, what is the typical response to this conundrum? What's the routine? What's the structure? What's the behavioral sequences? Who, you know, person A does this, person D B does this, person A responds by doing this, person B does that. It's very subtle. Sometimes it's just a look on the face. Sometimes it's verbal. Sometimes it's walking out of the room. Sometimes it's yelling. Sometimes it's stonewalling. Sometimes it's smiling. Sometimes it's hugging. Sometimes, you know, there's so many options that people will use. And when you observe yourself or other people, you are this this sequence of what happens from this point forward you are observing the structure of the family system. So again, this, this might have something to do with hierarchy. This might have something to do with boundaries. But really, as you can tell, it's much deeper than that. And it's much more micro, which is what structural family therapists are interested in. They're, not, they're interested in hierarchy and boundaries, sure. But they're much more interested, if they're, if they're true to their word about structural family therapy, they're much more interested in the behavioral sequences of families. So again, what's the routine that you do? What's the routine that you and your spouse engage in? Is the routine for you to give in to your spouse and resent your spouse and then punish your spouse later, and then your spouse eventually notices that you're punishing them, and they get angry, and then there's this big fight, and then there's a blowout for a couple days, and then eventually you go to therapy and then you work it out? Is that the routine? Or is the routine that you tell your spouse that you've had a hard day and you just can't watch the kids right now? You just can't deal with what your spouse wants you to do. And then your spouse is disappointed and hurt and pouts for the next two days and then you try to make make up for it by being extra nice to your spouse. Or is the routine that you get in a fight right then and there and then both of you go to bed angry with each other, each of you not getting your needs met? Or is the routine that you give in and then later tell your spouse how you feel and your spouse listens well and you go to bed feeling good about each other? What's the routine? So again, the, some of you might be thinking like, well, I don't know what the routine is. I'll just, I just do what feels right. I guarantee you, if I were to watch you, you know, like a, like a invisible drone following you around over your head, I'm sure we'll have those one day in our lives. Um, I I can almost guarantee you that I would be able to predict, uh, after watching you go through something like this a couple times, I'd be able to predict the third behavior. The third time this happens, I'd be able to predict the behavioral sequence. We we act in especially once we establish a system after a couple years, we become extremely predictable in our behavior some of you might already know this obviously it's like imagine all the fights you've been in with your with your partner or all the fights you've been in with a past partner my guess is is that you might have noticed that the fight would progress exactly the same it 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 ends up being just comical how the fights are so similar this happens then this person gets quiet then this person resents, then this person starts to yell, this person sh- shuts down, this, per- you know, it becomes extremely predictable. Why is that? Why do we do that? Now, from a non systemic point of view, from a linear point of view, we would say, well, people act predictable because individuals are predictable. But actually, when you take people out of a system and you put them in a different system, the individual will conform to the system rules not the other way around. Systems don't conform to individuals. Individuals conform to systems. So for example, for yourself, as an example of this, you might want to think about the way in which you uh, deal with stressors in your family that you're in, like with your partner and kids or whomever. Um, Or uh, in contrast, the way that you deal with stressors in your work system, if you've been there for a while. In contrast to the way you deal with stressors in your friend system, in contrast to the way you deal with stressors with your parents and your grandparents, that these tend to be different. And sometimes they can be sort of coincidentally the same. But but the idea is, is that systems are powerful influencers on individual behavior. Individuals do have an effect on the system, for sure. But it's not as if, we are isolated psychologies that behave the same wherever we are in whatever context we're in, and that is just not true. And it's been proven by demonstrated empirical science, uh, time and time again, that depending on the context, we 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 act differently. And when you actually really notice that about yourself, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. To, to really notice, like, okay, if I was outside of me right now, how am I acting? Actually, the best way to really figure this out is to ask someone close to you your different modes. Just – just if, you ever, if, you, if you're brave enough, just ask someone around you. Maybe you've already done this. Like, so what are the different modes that I get into? Someone that's close to you will be able to rattle those off fast. They'll be like, well, you have your work mode where you're all business. You have your fun mode where – you know you like to dance around and you know you're you're not serious at all and you're real jokey you have your angry mode where everything seems to piss you off and uh, you punish everyone around you uh, you have your uh, mode that you get into before we go to your parents house where you start kind of acting like a child you have a mode where i see you around your older brother in which you, you act like you're a teenager, I see, you know, mode, 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 several different modes. So what is it? Are we individuals with individual psychologies or are we a part of a system and are we influenced by the system? Uh, obviously, it's both. So, so anyway, the point is, is that uh, we act in predictable ways, particularly once a system becomes stable. We uh, have, as a system, we have very predictable ways of working things out. And when you look at it closely, then you understand the system and then you understand how you can actually change things for the better if there's a problem. We, we act in predictable ways for a number of reasons. Uh, probably most importantly, because we, we, we predictable routines are preferred because imagine if every day you woke up and your family system had a completely new set of rules it would be really disorienting in fact people get really anxious when they don't understand the rules of the game uh, it's like when you f- it's it, a, a big part of this that you can often see is when you go to a new job so you enter a new workplace the first couple days you will feel extremely anxious not, not, I mean, sometimes it's for actual legitimate reasons, but often it's because you just don't understand the landscape. You don't understand the culture. You don't understand the politics. You don't understand the personalities. You, you just don't understand the rules. You don't know how to operate within that system well fast forward 6 months 12 months you know 24 months you understand the the workplace system and you know how to ma- navigate your way through it and you know your place in that system and the system now knows your place in the system that's 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 the other part of the thing is it's it's anxious for you at those first few days at work because the system actually doesn't know where you fit either and they're worried about what you are contributing and they're 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 worried that you um, don't have a place yet. There's there's a lot of anxiety when people don't have a place. Uh, another example that I often tell students about is we like predictable routines as in a restaurant. So think about all the different routines in a typical American restaurant that uh, we follow. It's a very ceremonial, root, routinized experience. You... I, when I describe this to you, I hope you understand that each of these things are kind of arbitrarily decided, decided upon, and other cultures don't operate this way. And when you go to another culture, people will often judge this other culture as as deficient or inferior because they're not following the system rules. So you know we have a system that is consistent across the vast majority of, of restaurants, for example. You, f- There's a front door, <laughs> okay? That's a, that's a convention. That's a, that's a rule that all restaurants have is like you must have a front door. That must be um, easily detected from where you are coming from, whether it's walking up or the car. And there's actually a Mexican restaurant by my place right now. And the front door is actually around the side. And every time I try to walk in to this restaurant, I walk in through the back door, but it's locked from the outside. And so I, every time I'm like, God damn it, you know. And so I walk around the side. and I'm like, Here's the, why is the front door all the way over here? It's ridiculous. Like you can't see it from the parking lot. So if you've ever had that experience, right there, you are bumping up against a system that is not following the typical rules. Okay, so you walk in the door. And right away, you, sh- there should be a sign indicating, do you seat yourself or do you wait to be seated? There's a sign that says, please wait to be seated, or there's a sign that says, please seat yourself. And when there isn't that sign, it throws us off a little bit. We're like, huh. So which one? So if there is a, if there is a sign that says, please wait to be seated, you just stand there. You just stand there like a, like an idiot, you know, for as long <laughs> as, as the, it, you, you don't, You don't approach anyone. If no one has eye contact with you, you just, you just stand there and you hope that someone comes, gets, comes and gets you. Now, how do you know that? How do you know that when you walk, see that sign that says, please wait to be seated, how do you know that someone's going to get you? Well, because these restaurant systems follow extremely routinized behavioral sequences. You know, you are quite comfortable just waiting there, knowing that someone will come get you. And, you know, uh, 99 times out of 100, someone does. So someone eventually notices you. They they, they say, oh, welcome to our restaurant. Uh, how many? And then – and you – so that's all they might say is like how many? And you instantly know what they mean. They they mean how many people are in your party, right? Because they, cause they're – you might think, well, you can see how many, right? But they don't know if you're together. They don't know if other people are coming. And so it's all part of the routine. You know this. And you say, "Oh, it's just just the two of us." Okay, just the two of us. They grab menus. Uh, they walk you to the, the. Now, again, here, the idea is is that you know, as the customer, that the staff person is going to tell you where to sit. How do you know that? Well, because you've you've seen it happen over and over and over again, and you just know that the that the person's going to seat you where they want you to sit. And you now sometimes you can sort of. Negotiate that, but in general, for the vast majority of people, you just you just sit where that person tells you to sit. How do you know that? That's a you know that's where that's a massive assumption. It's like you know someone from another culture might walk in, wait to be seated. They say, "How many in your party?" Two, and then you start walking to the restaurant, and then the customer says, "I'd like to sit here," <laughs> or just sits down or something. You know what I mean? So uh, we all know that. Okay, then you sit down. Then you. You might know what you want. Maybe you've been to that restaurant before and you know you want a hamburger and fries. And so someone from another culture might sit down and say, I'd like a hamburger and fries. But we know better in America, right? We, we, because our rules state that the person that seated you is not necessarily the person that takes your food order. Uh, so you so for the most part you sit down and you know that the person seating you even though they work there and they there's no differentiation between that person and a a wait person. Uh, you know that you don't you don't tell them what you want unless they ask you. Okay, so then they go off. Someone comes back with water or something. Okay, that's you know usually the thing. And then some and then and and also again you know that the person giving you water may or may not be the person that. Is going to take your food order. Um, then uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's all the same person. Maybe the the host, the water person, the drinks person, and the waiter is all the same person. You don't know that. You won't know it until you actually find it. And then someone finally asks you, "What do you you know? Do you know what you want to uh, eat yet?" So in this, it seems like obvious, but again, to break it down, the wait person has assumed that you have been looking at the menu since you sat down. That you have, you sat down and you understand. No one, you know, no one tells you when you walk into the restaurant, here is a menu of all the different things that we offer. We don't offer anything other than what's on this menu. And as soon as you sit down, I want you to read this menu. Look at the prices, figure out what you want, and then someone else will come later and ask you for what you want. No one says that. They just know that you know that because there's a routine. You've been through it before, and we like that. We And when things get out of whack, like, like someone – like there's a sign that says, please wait to be seated, but no one ever comes to get you, or – they sit you down and they don't bring the menus right away maybe like 5 minutes later they bring the menus or the uh they don't bring you water or they you know they seat you in this weird configuration it's it's all um or another, as from the side of the of the staff person the customer says uh i would like to sit right here and the and the host is like, well, actually, I kind of need you to sit over here because there's no wait person in this room. You know, like if when you throw off the system, things people get upset, not because it's inherently upsetting, but because it's you're not following the system. Okay, so then the waiter comes over and says, "What would you like to eat?" Or what would you, you know what? What could I get for you today? And there's a whole routine to the micro way in which we communicate this. Okay, you you know eye contact. You look at the, the wait person, uh, at least briefly. You acknowledge them and you say, oh, well, I would like this and this and this. And then the person says, that's good, that's great. And then, you know, you, you take orders, okay? Then blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the, the thing goes on and on because you could even break down like how you pay and the credit card and the, you know, da, 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 da. And the, you'll, you'll never realize how, um, how, how systemic and how routinized these behaviors are until you see a young person try to navigate this if you if you have kids or nieces or nephews or you've been around kids at a restaurant, you understand that they do not understand how the system works <laughs> and then you and and a, a, a typical sort of response to that is like well, kids are kids or you know they're immature or they have impulse control problems, but really. Most of it, in my opinion, is they just haven't been indoctrinated into the system yet because they they haven't been to enough restaurants yet. It's sort of like driving on the road. There's a, there's a total culture in different towns on how you drive on the road. And when you move to another town, you notice that, oh, the rules in the system around driving are different. And a common response to that is everyone in this town is an idiot on the road. I, I hear people from outside Seattle. People come to Seattle. It's like everyone's an idiot here. And I'm like – well, maybe you just don't have, maybe your rules are different. You know, I, I certainly, there are some idiots on the roads in, C- in Seattle, but God, you know, there's idiots on the roads everywhere. Right. So, um, so it's, it's just a matter of like different, different conventions. And some towns they drive fast. Sometimes they drive slow. Sometimes you, you're just more accommodating to others. Some you're more assertive, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So it's just a matter of the system. So when you're at a restaurant and you're with your, uh, you know, your kid or your, there's a you know a 10 year old or even a 13 year old and though the, the waiter is going around and taking orders from the adults and the waiter asks the 13 year old and what would you like if you've ever been around kids you'll you know there's various different responses and a lot of a lot of kids will freak out under those circumstances they'll just be like I don't know what I want god or they'll just be quiet or you know or they'll sort of look at their parents like so th- this random person is asking me this question. I don't know how to respond. Now, if the parent just asked the kid, what would you like to eat? The kid knows that routine. The kid knows that routine because they've been through that routine so many times with the parent because the parent is constantly asking a kid, what do you want to eat? <laughs> you know, Or are you hungry? Or blah, blah, blah. Or you know, I need you to choose between these three things. You want corn dog or blah, blah, blah. Um, but what they don't understand is what the routine is in a restaurant. And so this behavioral sequence becomes extremely powerfully anxiety-provoking to them. But by the time they're older, they understand the rules. And so I point out this system. I hope it demonstrates that systems are everywhere and that routines are preferred. We love routines. And when when someone doesn't follow a routine, the system elements will punish through what we call negative feedback – the players who are not acting normally and according to our definition of normal. And so the system of the restaurant, you know, so if, you know, Yelp reviews, for example, are uh, provide negative feedback, meaning that, so say, so say someone is not playing by some restaurant is not playing by the normal American conventional systemic rules around seating the uh, the customers. They don't have a sign at all. There's no sign that indicates seat yourself or, you know, please wait to be seated. And customers walk in and they're like, uh, should I seat myself or not? And then they're like, well, maybe we should just seat ourselves. And then they sit down and then the host comes over and yells at them. Says, what are you doing? I, I need to seat you. Okay. So then that person goes home and Yelp reviews them and says, these assholes, they, there's no sign. And they, you know, blah, blah, Well, so that is feedback to the system that says you are not operating according to the equilibrium you are not operating according to the conventions and uh, here's some feedback to make you uh, you know operate according to the system so so all this will come into play later when we actually talk about family systems okay so other examples of structure so that's all structure that that you know at restaurants the that routine that Predictable behavior is the structure of those systems. Other examples. Um, For those of you in long-term relationships, if you're in a long-term relationship or you've ever been in a long-term relationship, think about how you have sex, if you have sex. Some people don't have sex, but think about how you have sex. Who initiates the sex? How does that person initiate the sex? Or if both people initiate how, do, how does each person initiate? Or is there a standard way of initiating sex? What are the exact steps involved? I bet you that you have extremely predictable routines for having sex. One person says something like, Hey, 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 you know, wah, 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 wee, wah. <laughs> or another person says, Hey, how about we go to bed early tonight? Or another person says, you know, I'm feeling a little frisky today. <laughs> I think that was from uh, Happy Days back in the seventies. Um, or, or it's just physical. You just you uh, you walk up to your spouse in the kitchen, and instead of just a, a slight hug and a kiss, you you really hug and really kiss them, <laughs> and start grabbing them places and stuff. Okay, um, or you're in bed and you. Uh, you know, reach over and start to cuddle with your partner, whatever. There's many different ways that we will signal to the other person that we would like to have sex or that we're curious as to our partner's um, uh, interest in having sex in that moment. Uh, And then – but that's just the beginning, how you initiate, right? Then how does the person respond? Um, In what way do they respond? Uh, you know, you uh, start to cuddle with your partner in bed. Uh, you know, it's like, well, maybe we're going to fall asleep. You're like, oh, maybe we'd have sex tonight. And then you uh, cuddle. And then if your spouse is interested, how do they communicate that? If they're ambivalent or not interested, how do they communicate that? Uh, you know, there's, there's very subtle ways. Then once, the, uh, once it's on, <laughs> you know, what is the exact routine? um you know there are these are these situations by the time you get into long term relationships are so routinized that i bet you you could videotape you know in a creepy manner i suppose people having sex in their real world situations and they would you could overlay them the video and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from from you know encounter number 5 to encounter number 6 it would just be Extremely routinized. Now, some people don't. some people have very um, uh, you know, they have variety. But even in within that variety, like I don't know, 50 shades of gray kind of stuff, I suppose, there often becomes routine. Um, it, it's a It's a myth in our romantic movies that sex is always new and that it's always exciting and that da, da da it's just, it just is not the case. Now, some people try to achieve that and they put effort into it. But when you actually look at the average people and average having sex, it, it, you know, it becomes routinized. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it becomes because we like routine. We like predictable behavior. You know, there's a lot of goals that people are trying to reach when they're having sex with each other. It's like, well, I want to feel good. I want to share this with someone. I want to get off. I want to um, not screw this up. I want this to not be scary for either one of us. I want it to be pleasurable. I want to give pleasure. I want to get pleasure. There's all these different things that people are trying to get. And if you find – a set of routines that lead that gives everyone what they want for the most part then why would you give that up right once you land on a routine that everyone you know basic because because when you're having whenever you're there's more than one person involved there's more than one uh, set of preferences more than one set of experiences that are happening and in order to accommodate Everyone, especially when you involve like lots of people, uh, I'm not talking about an orgy of sex. I'm just talking about like lots of people in a family who are trying to decide what to watch on the TV or something. It's like you, there's once you find a way where for the most part, everyone gets their needs met, then you go, oh, that worked. Let's stick with that. Now, that's not a conscious decision, but it is an unconscious decision. And sometimes those those routines that we've decided upon early in our relationships are not necessarily the best routine, but they're just the routine that we found through trial and error that, you know, basically works. Like with, 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 sex, for example. So the first, you know, 10, 20 times you have sex with your partner that you're with, you know, for 10 years, the first, the first 10 to 20 to 30 times you have sex, there's a lot of experimentation because you don't know what the other person likes. You don't know how you fit together. And so there's all this trial and error. And sometimes it goes horribly wrong, you know, uh, sometimes tragically, but sometimes just like awkward, you know, it's like, oh, that was awkward. Or, um, you know, I, I, this has worked with other people, but that didn't work with that person or, or, um, geez, you know that was uh, that wasn't as good as the last time. Maybe we should go back to the way we did it last time. Or you know, it's not a, often. It's sometimes a, a very conscious conversation, but often it's not. It's a, it's a subtle trial and error, and you discover like, huh, okay. And then by the time it's your fiftieth, hundredth, five hundredth, thousandth time you've had sex, you have. So definitely by the fiftieth time, in all likelihood, you have found a routine. That is not awkward, that is predictable, that feels good, that basically gets everyone's needs met. But let's say that uh, you you found that routine, the 10th time that you had sex, and all the other routines that you tried one through nine trials were were really bad. And so the 10th time was just less bad. But it was like, extremely less bad <laughs> than the other routines. But when you actually look at it, you're like, you know, it could be a lot better too. There's there but we found this less bad routine on the tenth try and we've been sticking with it this whole time. Maybe there's a even better routine. So I'm talking about sex, but I we could be talking about anything. We could be talking about, you know, when you come home from work and you're stressed out, how do and your and your spouse is really also stressed and has needs how do the two of you navigate that so in that analogy which i was giving you know the example i gave before is the routine that you land on uh, uh, you know might be one that doesn't feel good to either one of you the routine is you know i shut down you get angry we go through that for a few days i resent you you resent me and then and then we just sort of forget about it we just sort of internally forgive each other for it and move on with our lives our lives so that doesn't sound great but it's much better than other trial and errors that might the couple might have uh, tried earlier on in their relationship in which they really yelled at each other and threatened to break up with each other or something so although the routine they've landed on and the one that they perpetuate for years and years and years seems weird in that why would you land on that one? Why, why did, why was that routine the one that you established? You know, it doesn't seem pleasant. Well, it's because other, the other trials that they had were even worse. So this routine actually preserves the system, preserves the relationship. And is the least damaging. And that's very important to understand about systems thinking in general. A lot of things I'm talking about right now are are not in, are not only within structural family therapy. they're actually I'm, now I'm getting into general systems theory, which structural family therapy definitely is a part of and, and a major influencer over. So, you know that's a, this is very important to understand is that as a therapist or as a you know human who actually observes a system and goes like, why are you doing that routine? That's a very strange routine. It, it, no one is getting what they want. It's, it's, it, there's so many better ways to be dealing with this. Well, what that is ignorant of is how bad the routine could have actually been and how bad their initial trials might have been, and that this one might actually be the best version they've ever established. It's the best trial they've ever had. And, you know, this is dictated by a lot of different things, right? the way in which you were raised the examples you were given growing up the examples given in culture the stressors that are put on your life and the uh, cuz again we like predictability and we tend to choose things that are uh, less painful than others and you know when you add all those things together people will sometimes land on predictable routines structured routines that um you know aren't great but at least they're not as bad as as they could have been and it's up to us as therapists to help people to understand that that even though it could be worse it could also be better and there's another routine that they could follow with some work that actually uh, would be way more beneficial to everyone involved now the problem is is that people again they really like a routine they they have a hard time with change. Take take for example, um, self driving cars or something. Um, you know, once those actually start to come on the market, as we can all predict, there's going to be a sizable amount of people that are going to resist it. They're going to just be like, self driving cars, that's ridiculous. You know, like I need to. I, you know, they're got, they're all going to crash and uh, and then even when you provide. Data and say like, well, we've studied it uh, multiple, you know, many many times. And this, this the city of Seattle has been doing uh, self-driving cars for the past two years, and the amount of accidents, particularly fatalities, have gone down from this to this. It's like a massive drop off. Blah blah blah. You know, um, you can convince people all you want, uh, but their gut is going to tell them no because it's different. It's a different system. It's a different set of rules, and. Even though I hear you saying that it's better, and I and I guess consciously I, I'm a I can you know I can I can dig it, deep down I I just can't change. It's it's just too scary. We we like routines, you know. Uh, we like things to be the same. Uh, we tend to dress the same. We drive to work the same. We start our cars the same. We. We, you know, get ready for work in the morning in the same way we, you know, you throw that off and, and people get upset. And so it's up to us as therapists to, you know, understand that, that it's hard for people to change their systems and to, for a system to change. Um, anyway, other examples. For those of you in bigger families, when Thanksgiving comes around, who organizes it? So this is to by American people. Although, does Canada celebrate Thanksgiving? Uh, Krista in Vancouver does does um, does uh, uh, Canada celebrate? I think they do, right? Anyway, um, or something along those lines. God, how terrible! I'm a I'm a ugly American in this way. Anyway, so those for those of you in bigger families, regardless of where you live, whatever sort of big family holiday comes up, um, who organizes that big family holiday? Who sends out that first email? Who doesn't send out that first email? Who makes everyone feel comfortable at the event? Who's the jerk face? Who's the drunk one? Um, these things are very predictable. Again, why are they so predictable? Well, it's because you know it's process and structure and structure. Not you know we're not individuals. Um, we're not you know it's anyway um, another example. For those of you with kids with children who are in you know grade school and younger, who, who do your kids go to when they need something? When your kid is hungry or when your kid is sad or when your kid has a question, who do they go to? And maybe they go to different people for different things. And how do they initiate the conversation? How do they react when you say no? And how do you comp- compensate when you say no? How do you respond to them? What's your typical way of responding? How does how does the other parent respond if they're in the room these are very predictable routines because children as little humans are also very interested in routines and you'll see that in kids they they really really like routines they really really like to understand what the what the systemic behavioral sequences are you know another example for again for those of you with kids how do you put your kids to bed what's the routine you know who does what Again, I bet that process is highly predictable. And if it's not, you probably have a lot of problems. <laughs> um, uh, now, sometimes some kids present a lot of issues where it's hard to have a routine. But anyway, so now this is perhaps the most important example I can give to you is, is to, to really think about is in your family, you know, however you define that, how does each member in your family ask for help? How does each person, how do you ask for help from another person? We All of us need help. How, how do you ask and how do other people ask for love and attention from each other? Really think about it. You know, we all need love and attention. How do you ask for it? How do others ask you for it? How do you respond? How do others respond to you? Um, you know, if you think about it, I'm positive that there's a predictable pattern, right? when When you have a hard day at work, How do you, uh, you know, what what's the behavioral sequence exactly that you go through uh, to to show people in your that are close to you that you need someone to vent to? How do they respond when you vent? how do How do they respond? How do you respond when they don't know that you want to vent? Like you come home from work, you want to vent, and you know your spouse is watching TV. And you sit down on the couch and you're just like, oh, my God, I had the worst day at work. So right here, it's a – it's a, what's the routine? Did it, when you said that, oh, my God, I had the worst day at work, what is the predictable situation from that point forward? Is it predictable that your spouse will mute the TV or turn it off or will they leave it on? Will they turn to you or will they just go, uh-huh, wow, tell me more? And do you care? You know, there's, there's all these different little moments that happen. And this is the structure of a family. It's not just hierarchy and boundaries. It's, it's these routines. Um, if there's a problem in your family, like depression or conflict or a rebellious child, um, you know, how does the family deal with that? And could the structure be better? Could the structure be more healthy? That's the idea behind structural family therapy. Um, you know, you assess the structure and you change the structure. You assess, you, you, you assess the routine, the process, the behavioral sequence, and you change that behavioral sequence. It's hard to do that, which we'll get into in a second. Um, so, again, systems are really resistant to change. They like to have what we call homeostasis, which is a equilibrium of the system. We like things to be predictable. So, you know, so even though it might be a bad predictable pattern... It's like it's our predictable pattern, and I'd like things to be predictable. The devil you know sort of thing, right? And so in order for a – and what family therapists like Salvador Mnuchin and others discovered early on in family therapy was that families are extremely resistant to change even when they know they should change. And so insight isn't always a – a ticket to actual change, and so what Minuchin and others uh, discovered is that uh, you have to perturb the system; they would call it. You have to you have to unbalance the system. You have to poke at the system, quote unquote. Sometimes this is called the Minuchin crisis. You have to destabilize the homeostasis. You have to get them out of their regular negative feedback loops that keep them locked in in a particular pattern. And this involves with structural and strategic family therapists. Being a bit weird, so it, it gets a little odd. Like I'm trying to think of an example of this. It, like you say, you have a family in uh, in session with you, and they are, you know, you've you've assessed and you figured out, okay, they have this, they have this, um, this uh, this pattern, and okay, how do I perturb it? How do I get them unbalanced? Um, hmm. Well, it seems to me that the parents don't really talk to each other about their problems. And they, the parents uh, are really suffering and their marriage is really suffering, but no one's really talking about it. So one way to perturb the system, one way to poke the system, one way to create a Mnuchin crisis is to ask the children to rate their parents' marriage on a scale from 1 to 10. So you, you ask the rebellious child. So how, how close do you think your parents are? How, how good is their marriage on a scale from one to ten? With ten being like the best marriage of all time and one being like the worst marriage of all time and five being like mediocre. What, what would you say, uh, would be the rating of your parents' marriage? And you know, the, everyone in the family is like, "Oh, what's what's going on here? Uh, why are we even talking about the marriage? We we've been talking this whole time about this rebellious teenager's behavior. Why are we talking about our marriage? Uh, how does this happen?" And then, you know, the rebellious teenager gets a, gets a little smirk and says, "Well." I don't know everything that happens, but I, I, they don't seem like they love each other. In fact, I hear them fighting behind, you know, in their bedroom sometimes. So I don't know, I'd give it a four, I guess. I guess it could be worse, but it, it, it doesn't seem very close to me. And uh, so this is potentially, if if this is what you've intuited as perturbing the system, this unbalances the system for a number of different reasons. One is is that it has shifted the evaluation Vectors from parents to children, from children to parents. So that's that's you're, you've drastically changed the rules. It, it is similar to again using the restaurant metaphor or the restaurant example of a system. Is you walk in through the kitchen and you say, and you walk up to the cook and say, "I would like a hamburger and fries." <laughs> you know, it's like. Everyone, start, the cook starts looking like, "What are you doing in here? How, how is what's going on here?" You know, and I guess if you were to use this example, if you've been hired, say, say a restaurant hires you to look at the system of the restaurant and how you can improve it, and uh, and you see like this, the fa- the the system of this restaurant is extremely rigid, and and they have you know, and you you want to you want to break them out of the mold. Well, uh, as a way of breaking them out, this is what you do. You walk in through the back door. Uh, you're in a tuxedo, and you sit down. You bring your own table. You sit down in the kitchen, and you would be like, "I w- I really like it back here. It's pretty cool. I like seeing everyone cook, and I want a hamburger and fries. Can I have it now, please? I'd lo- I'll pay you good money for it." <laughs> and then you know, and the host and the waiters are like, "What? Uh, what's going on? Why is he in the kitchen?" So, but what now? What you've done is is you said. Um, well, why can't we eat in the kitchen? What's wrong with that? Why can't I walk in through the back door? And, you know, the, fam- the, the, the family system of the restaurant will be like, well, you just can't do that. You can't walk in the back door. You can't sit in the kitchen. That's ridiculous. But and then if you demonstrate like, well, what, you know, what, what's why? Why can't I do that? and then the restaurant people will be like well because you just don't do that and that's not the way we're supposed to do things and you're like well if you can't demonstrate to me exactly why I can't then I you know I'm not convinced in that in the similar and so what you're trying to do is you're trying to demonstrate to a family look you're following a bunch of rules that you haven't really evaluated and some of these rules are questionable and so Uh, unless you can justify to me why these rules need to be followed, then I'm not going to follow them. And so this is, uh, and then the idea is if you're really effective and charismatic in this with families and you pull it off, well, the the family system is like, what? You know, and then they start thinking, huh? So I wonder what other routines and rules we're following in this family that we could change. You know, you, you just start thinking with a new set of eyes and, good family therapists, good structural family therapists are, are good at being able to uh, use the Minution crisis in this way. So let me give a, maybe a longer uh, example of this in actual therapy. Uh, this is a situation that I've ran into a lot. I'm not thinking of a particular client, but I've seen it many, many times. So parents come to me and they say, our teenage boy is 14 years old, and he's smoking weed all the time, and he's getting bad grades, and he's not doing his chores, and he's uh, not cleaning his room and he's playing video games all the time and uh, he's being disrespectful. He stays up all night uh, under the covers playing his iPad and he's he's just a you know he's completely out of control and he he's he's failing half of his classes and blah blah. blah. Well, an individual counselor would isolate the, this teenage boy and try to convince him to obey his parents or or try to Figure out why the kid is doing this behavior. Try to figure out, like, well, maybe the kid is struggling with something, like being bullied or something. And and there's, so there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a very limited way of treating people. And a lot of therapists, counselors will do this. They'll just be, they'll just say, okay, drop off the kid, and and I'll meet with the kid for the next year in individual therapy uh, every week and the reason why a lot of counselors and therapists default to this methodology is because it's very easy. There's there's no threat there, there's no worry about it. You know, you you meet with the kid and you get to know him and you talk about stuff. It's it's very low key. It's very it's very not anxious. What is extremely anxiety provoking is actually saying what family therapists will do is say well, you all have to come to the first session, including this kid's siblings and maybe even your grandparents if they're involved, too. So I, I need everyone in here. It also sort of means you have to have a huge office, which a lot of family therapists will have. So so family therapists say, you know what? Uh, I hear you telling me that you're having trouble with your kid, with your teenager, teenagers having all these problem behaviors. Um, but I need everyone to come in and be, so so because the family therapist is like, well – In order for me to really understand what's happening here, I need to see the system. I need to see the family system. So the family therapist says, "You need to come in." A lot of families resist that. They're like, "What do you mean? I'm not the patient. It's the kid. My my kid's the problem. I'm not the problem." So family therapists, good family therapists get good at convincing people very quickly about the usefulness of family therapy or they just become very good at explaining it very quickly. Just be like, well, I'm a family therapist and sometimes it's interesting to see everyone or I want to hear everyone's perspective or I I, I need – at least in the beginning, I need to be working with everyone. Maybe maybe eventually I'll just start talking alone with the kid. But to fully understand the, the problem, I, I need, I need everyone to come in because I really need to – talk with everybody about everyone's perspective. So then um, now I'm going to talk about the exact technique of structural family therapy um, in uh, specifics more, more later, but just to get into this a little bit now. So I would ask the them to, so I'd ask the family in session. So they're all there. So there's the parents, maybe a grandparent who lives in the home, three kids. I asked them, in the family to either describe for me or even to show me how they communicate about this issue when the kid has bad behavior you know i'll say okay so parents show show me how you try to convince your kid not to smoke weed and then i i watch how the parents talk and i watch how the kids react and respond how the you know how does this work through the system who does what i try to figure out what part of the process is creating the problem Maybe I notice that the father is highly emotional and reactive while the mother is more level-headed. Maybe I see that the boy's sister joins in and starts attacking the older brother on behalf of the father. Um, Maybe I see that the father and the sister are in an alliance or a coalition. And then over time, I start to notice that the mother is sort of aligned with the rebellious teenager. So it's it's, it's the mother and the teenager boy who are against the father and the daughter. And maybe I see that the mother kind of subtly steps in to protect him from the father, to protect the teenage boy from the father and from the daughter. And then I have the beginnings of of an hypothesis about what's wrong in this family and why this teenager is actually rebelling. It's not that the kid is a bad kid, but it's because this family has a process that is, quote-unquote, unhealthy. The parents don't feel properly bonded, or they're not properly together on their parenting style. And they don't know how to talk about it, to work out their differences in parenting, they don't know how to they don't know how to better their bond. They don't know how to agree on one parenting approach. And the sister has been elected by the system, and she volunteers to um, you know she's really worried about her older brother, and so she's been elected to exhibit this by yelling at him. Um, the teenage boy is trying to individuate. He's fourteen, fifteen. He's trying to become his own person. And he's trying to find himself, and he's trying to find a group of friends who will accept him, which means maybe he has to smoke pot in order to fit in sometimes. But he doesn't know how to do all of this while still following the rules because his parents have different reactions to his behavior. And he wants to please them, but he also wants to have fun with his friends and be naughty sometimes, as, as a lot of teenagers have a need to be naughty. Um but he's frequently getting surprising reactions from his parents because they have different approaches to him and he's given up, tried trying to please them. And that's an important thing. It's like eventually the routine of the family is such that, uh, it's best if the teenage boy just doesn't even try because if he tries, then things go bad. So when I see all this, I try to fix it and I try to create a minutian crisis and then I, I try to change the system. Okay. So that is structure. (laughs) That's a long, long talk about all the different nuances of structure and as you can tell it's not just hierarchy or boundaries which I'll get into in a second you know oftentimes again people will say oh structural family therapy it's all about it's all about hierarchy and boundaries and it's like no it is not it is about the behavioral sequences of family systems and that is the structure the routine i wish it was called not structural family therapy but like routine family therapy or behavioral sequence family therapy or something cuz structure it it connotes a sense of hierarchy and boundaries it connotes a sense of concrete structures right but uh, structure the, the has those elements to it as well, but it, but I think more importantly, it has the elements of routines and behavioral sequences. Anyway, okay. So boundaries. This is a very important idea to structural family therapy. Um, boundaries are acknowledged in all the different family therapies for the most part, but not as much as structural family therapy emphasizes it. So the idea of boundaries in general systems theory. Um, as it was applied to family systems, it comes, it originally, you know, came from outside of family systems theory, as I was talking about before, in terms of natural systems, in terms of biological symptoms, like cells or ecological ecological symptoms or even societal symptoms. There, in, in, in each of these systems, there needs to be a boundary, um, between the, the organism and the outside of the organism. But it, but the boundary needs to be permeable somewhat. You know, there needs to be a, like a healthy permeability between the system and the outside world, both inward and outward. So, you know, they need to accept some things in and they need to be allowed to put some things out. So, with a cell, for example, you have the cell wall. And if you understand cellular biology, um, then you're going to listen to me and, and cringe as I talk about this. But from what I understand, a, a typical cell will, in order to survive, it has to be able to allow some things to get in, nutrients and other kinds of things. But it it can't be so permeable that everything just sort of floods into it, because uh, and or out of it. Right? If if it if the things inside of the cell are just free to just roam away from the cell, then it will lose its important components. But it does have some things inside that it needs to uh, spit out in order to survive. Right. And so uh, there's, there's a wall around the cell, but it's permeable somewhat to, to select things. And if a cell becomes overly rigid in its, in its boundary with the outside world, then it, it stops to function well, and it might even die as a result. Um, and on the other side of the spectrum, if the cellular wall is too permeable, then too many things will get in and too many things will get out and it will also cease to function or even die. But so that's the idea of biology symptoms and, and early family therapists were applying this notion, this, this concept to family systems that a family system has boundaries with the outside world. It also different subsystems have boundaries. So you have the parental subsystem has a boundary between the parents and the kids. And if, uh, there needs to be it needs to be a unit, but it, it some things need to get out obviously and 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 it, some things need to be uh, taken in but if the boundary is too permeable, then the system will dysfunction and if the system is too rigid and not permeable enough, then again the system will dysfunction so there are three types of boundaries in families you have clear, rigid and diffuse this is the language of of structural family therapy. You have clear, which is healthy. You have rigid, which is too you know, impermeable. And you have diffuse, which is too permeable. So clear boundaries but, and between people. And it's important to know that uh, boundaries are um, between two things or two people. So you have the the boundary between a family and the world. You have a boundary between sister and brother. You have a boundary between um, the two parents, you have a boundary between the parents as a unit and the children. You have a parent, you know, so there's all these different kinds of boundaries that are happening and clear boundaries are flexible, but they're stable. That's another important thing is that uh, boundaries that are stable is it. It's a good sign. It's a good thing to have a stable boundary because again, we like routines and, and there's nothing wrong with the routine. Um, clear boundaries are, they provide mutual support. They meet each other's needs in the moment. They allow each person to be who they want to be and act how they want to act. And clear boundaries are relationships in which you notice each other, but it's not invasive. You don't notice too much about each other. Rigid boundaries are disengagement or distance. You don't know each other very well. It tends to be inflexible. People tend to be pathologically independent in these kinds of relationships. Uh, There's there's this attitude of don't bother me. So if if there's a... Rigid boundary between father and daughter. Uh, Father and daughter don't notice each other that much. They don't know that much about each other. There's this message to both people of like, ah, handle it yourself. People tend to be anxious in these relationships um, at times. And there's a lot more dependence on outside things. So the daughter will have very close relationships with her friends because she relies on her friends for closeness that she doesn't get from her dad. Um, diffuse relationships are too permeable. We associate this with enmeshment. It's There's often invasiveness across the boundary. The two people know too much about each other. They're overreactive to each other. There tends to be pathological dependence on each other. There's lack of individual identity, lack of individual freedoms. Uh, the the ch- children will tend to depend on their parents too much. They'll act immature, the children. Um, there's anxiety and depression, sometimes substance uh, use, and there's not enough contact with the outside world. So, solution focused therapy is interested in promoting healthy boundaries between everyone, particularly parents and children. So, solution, so this is one of my complaints, one of my critiques of solution, uh, fo- uh, solution, no solution. Have I been saying solution focused? Structural family therapy. Uh, structural family therapy, uh, again, so. Okay, so structural family therapy is interested in promoting healthy boundaries, uh, particularly between parents and children. Structural family therapy is often uh, fairly prescriptive in this way, you know, and this is one of my critiques: is is that uh, they structural family therapists tend to believe they know what's best for families, and they tend to have a sort of agenda that might that the family might not have as well as the the agenda might might not actually even be helpful, but. But it often is. It often is. The structural family therapist prescription is often the best answer, but it's hard to say. So their prescription is that parents need to be bonded, they need to be together, and they need to be basically close, but not too close. This is the executive subsystem or the parental subsystem, the marital subsystem. The kids should also be bonded, and this is called the sibling subsystem. Structural family therapists believe that kids should be bonded in essence – together at the expense of, uh, between, between parent and child. So, uh, so parents should be close together. Kids should be close together. And then, um, they should be a little distant between the parents and kids, not, not love, but there should be a little bit more of a firm boundary between the parental subsystem and the, and the children. Um, the parents should be clearly in control. The kids should be deferential to the parents authority. Uh, hopefully the authority is fair the parents should avoid being enmeshed with the children. The grandparents should allow the parents to have authority over the children. The parents should be free from their own parents in terms of individuating from their own families of origin, but connected to their families of origin as well. Again, it's pretty prescriptive. And like I said, it's, it's often the optimal hierarchy, but uh, it isn't always in my opinion. Um. So therapists, when they talk about boundaries, and particularly people outside of therapy, will use the concept of boundaries in this really linear way, which is, again, completely missing the point of structural family therapy and family therapy in general. They will say things like, "My, you know, the mother in this family has no boundaries. I, You know, it, this statement drives me crazy. For people outside of therapy, fine, you can say whatever you want. But for, for family therapists to say the phrase, the mother in this family has no boundaries – it completely doesn't understand the concept of boundaries because there there's two there's two problems with that statement the mother in this family has no boundaries okay so the first obvious problem with this statement is that there everyone has boundaries there's no such thing as no boundary what you mean is they have a diffuse boundary or the boundary is too permeable you know it'd be like saying the cells of this body have no boundaries. Well, if the cells of the body have no boundaries, they cease to be cells. They're they're just a you know the 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 organism would just be a mess of of organic material. So the definition of a cell is that it, from what I understand, is that there has to be some kind of boundary between it and the outside world. And so to say that your that a mother and a family has no boundaries, it's like so she doesn't exist or something. It's like she she either has um, uh, diffuse boundaries with other people or not. The other problem with this statement is that it, it fails to note that there are other people. So you can't say, um, uh, you know, when you think of boundary, think of like a boundary between two nations. So you have a boundary between the United States and Canada. There's a boundary between, there's a boundary line between those two countries. So you can't say that, um, you can't say something about one person's boundaries without talking about the other person's boundaries. It's they share the boundary. Okay. And the, um, uh, so, so the correct statement would be the mother in this family tends to have diffuse boundaries with everyone in this family. So she, you know, the mother in this family has a diffuse boundary with the father, with the daughter, with the son, and with work outside that the the mother has all these diffuse boundaries with everyone. But you could also say uh, individually that the father has diffuse boundary with the mom. The daughter has a diffuse boundary with the mom. The son has a diffuse boundary with the mom. So I hope you understand what I'm saying is that uh, you can't just label someone as having no boundaries. The boundaries exist between two people and both people contribute to that boundary. You know, people will often say, "Well, I don't get it because my dad is, has a very rigid boundary with me, and I'm always trying to make it more of a clear boundary. I'm trying to make it a healthy boundary where there's more communication across that line. But my dad refuses to let that, and so, you know, how do how do I say that? You know, I can't say that I have a rigid boundary with my dad because I don't want to have a rigid boundary with my dad. I want to have a, I want to have a, I want to have more communication." So again, this sort of misses the point of systemic thinking. Systems don't operate on necessarily one's preferences; they operate on how they operate. So, just because you would prefer there to be more communication, does, does doesn't mean there is more communication. So, when we talk about boundaries, we're talking we're talking about what is. We're not talking about what people want. In all likelihood, your dad also wants more communication with you as well, because it's it's human to want that with your daughter. But the but something's getting in the way. And now maybe it's mostly the dad's doing as to why the boundary is that way. But honestly, a lot of times both people are participating at least somewhat. So anyway, the point is, is that you, you would say the boundary between me and my father is rigid. Um, I would like it to not be rigid. I wonder if my dad would also like it not to be rigid, but he seems to often resist my efforts to change it from rigid to clear. So you, you understand my language there, right? It's, it's, it's acknowledging that there is one boundary between me and this other person. It you know, a lot of people will say, Well, I have clear boundaries with him, but he has rigid boundaries with me. That doesn't make any sense because there's only one boundary. Okay? There's boundary between you between you and this other person. Okay. Now, having said all that, uh, if you want to use your own language system, go for it. But just know you're not following strictly the conventions within family therapy theory you know metaphors are fine just just know that you're you're straying from the path of systemic family therapy and if that's your goal then cool that there's nothing wrong with that there's lots of different ways of describing things that's what I tell people that you know people will, will be like um, you know they'll, they'll interpret me in, in what I'm saying as as like systems thinking is the best way to think and that is definitely not what I think what I think is that systems thinking is the hardest way to think but it is just as useful as linear thinking. Linear thinking is extremely useful. So is systemic thinking. It just so happens that our society is a very linear society and therefore understands linear thinking extremely well. I don't have to teach linear thinking. I don't have to teach the idea that when someone's depressed, it's possible that there's something wrong with their brain. That's a linear perspective, and that's possible. I don't have to teach that. I don't have to say like – So you understand that sometimes people's biologies will dictate their bodies and their psychologies. You know, I don't have to teach that because it's in our culture so prevalently that by the time someone gets to graduate school, they already know that concept. But what is not in our society is systems thinking, and therefore, when they come to the university, I have to hammer them for them to sort of barely scratch the surface of systemic thinking and... Uh, and they walk away thinking that I think that systems thinking is better and linear thinking is, is inferior. But I'm just saying both are good. One is just a lot harder to understand. And so, therefore, I'm going to spend most of my time trying to teach you how to think this really hard thing so you'll have another way of looking at the world. Anyway, so another concept in structural family therapy is coalitions. Um, coalitions can be bad or good. You know, like you can have a, co- a bad coalition as a coalition between a parent and a child. This is sometimes called parentification. Um, there are also good good coalitions uh, to some extent. You know, you want the parents to be aligned. You want them to have a coalition. Um, another thing that structural family therapists will often do is they'll often say, because kids will fight amongst themselves. You know, if you're a parent, you know that this happens all the time uh, on a minute by minute basis with some kids. You know, they're just fighting all the time. Well, structural family therapists will will direct families to allow the kids to work it out amongst themselves and to not have the parents interfere. It's not super rigid in that way, but a lot of a lot of structural family therapists will propose that. They'll just be like, you know, they'll however they get there, they'll they'll try to get the the parents to just let the parents work let the kids work it out unless it's like really dire then step in. And structural family therapists think that when parents step in, they are denying the pos- the, the uh, ability for kids to work it about, work it out amongst themselves and to bond. So so there's that. Um, another important, frequent uh, stressor that structural family therapists will identify is that when children grow up and actually leave the family home, they should be able to leave the family home without having to worry about their family of origin. They should be able to launch into the world. And not have to turn back to care for their own families. Um, Again, this is kind of a cultural uh, Western notion, right? Um, And not necessarily uh, the optimal way to live for everyone around the globe. So that should be considered. Um, Okay. So there's also this concept of detouring, which is when a family member avoids dealing with someone in their subsystem and goes outside of the subsystem due to conflicts in the subsystem or anxiety. So if you know a, a parent you know has if if you have so say you have kids and you're in a marriage and you have a problem with your spouse and instead of just going directly to your spouse you go to your kid and vent to your kid this is called detouring it's called triangulation also but anyway and therapists try to help people not to detour they try to help people deal directly with the people they have a problem with so the goals of s- structural family therapy are, are, are pretty simple goals in practice, but are really hard to achieve. They, they work, they assess boundaries and coalitions, alignments and hierarchy, and they try to make it optimal. You know, they want a strong marital bond. They want a clear boundary between parents and children. They want children to be bonded as peers. They want disengaged families to interact more and they want enmeshed families to differentiate. Uh, structural family therapists are all also interested in context and marginalization. They want to assess that and, you know, be sensitive to it and maybe try to account for it. And structural family therapists are also interested in process. They want to look at the structure, the process, the routines, the behavioral sequences and change it to a more healthy way. Okay. So let's go on with the practice here for a bit. Let's talk about the specific areas of practice. Okay, so the practice of structural family therapy. Number 1 is joining. Now, this is the perhaps the most misunderstood concept in family therapy. It drives me crazy. People often consider joining to be building rapport. But it is not just building rapport. People will say, uh, I'll say like, you know, how's your relationship with the family with your family client? They'll be like, Ah, uh, you know, I've I've joined really well. You know, I think I think things are going well between us, and I'm like, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> no, I'm just like, that's not joining. It's you're, you've built good rapport. It sounds like you're saying you've built good rapport. That's great. It's impo- very important, but joining is much more complicated than that. Think of joining like this. Um, it's like an anthropologist who studies cultures and researches. And they want to study a, a particular culture. So they, they need to join with that, with that group of people and that culture. They need to go to that culture, people of that culture. They need to join them where they are. They don't force the people of that culture to come to them. The anthropologist goes to those people and actually embeds themselves in that culture. That, you know, to try to fully understand them, they have to hang out with them while these people are free to act the way they would normally act. And you, as an anthropologist, in sort of a best case scenario, you might even become kind of a working part of their system. You might, um, you know, do you might become a part of, you might become a role in their system. You you halfway adopt their culture and their beliefs and their routines, and you halfway become a part of that system. Again, you don't force them to come to your laboratory and make them dress and act and behave like you do. You have to go to them. And only then will you understand them. And only then will you be able to help them because you need to understand them to be able to help them. So that is joining. So when a therapist joins with a family system, it means that they go to the system and they they become a part of the system. Building rapport, I guess, is is definitely a part of that, but it's it's a very small part of it. So equating joining with rapport is wrong, and doing this demeans the whole institution of family therapy by reducing joining and the practice of family therapy to just being likable by your clients. It's extremely annoying to me, and it's like nails on a chalkboard when people use joining in this wrong way. We're family therapists, and we should know it fucking joining means it's a central concept to systems thinking and many have lost their way on this it's like saying you know an american anthropologist goes to papua new guinea to study their culture and he shows them the magic of his cell phone which causes them these people in papua new guinea to be really interested in him because they've never seen a cell phone before and he has now joined the tribe no, he has not joined the tribe. He has merely gotten their attention with his cell phone, and he's been likable. I don't know if people in Papua New Guinea have cell phones. Maybe they do. But, but the point is, I hope you understand what I'm saying. To join a family system, you have to enter their world and get them to truly accept you as one of them. And then only then will you be able to really see the true nature of the system and be able to know what's happening and therefore be able to help them. That's joining the system. I mean, the word joining, that doesn't sound like... Rapport, right? It sounds like what it is, right? Joining the system sounds like becoming a part of the system. Uh, rapport, I suppose, might be part of that. Like I said, but so the the description is in the word joining. Okay, this is a subtle process, and it takes time and charisma and confidence in your charisma. You have you you basically become a temporary member of the family. You have a role. You emphasize the aspects of your personality and experiences that are in sync with the family. This is what Mnuchin said for us to do. This is what he did. So if the family is really into fishing, then, then, you know, you try to emphasize the part of your, you and your personality that might like to go fishing. If the family talk, talks very quickly, then you try to talk very quickly as well. Um, you also have to be non judgmental in your attitude and in your behavior, and you seek to understand them and you provide empathy. So, this is part, so people often reduce joining just to this one tiny aspect of joining, which is providing empathy. Uh, empathy does not equal joining. It's like saying that um, my toe equals me, right? It's like if I cut off my toe and sent it to work to teach, people would turn to my toe and go like, "Thank you Kirk for coming to work." That's my, that, that's just my toe. It's a part of me, but it's it's just my toe. Uh that's like it's just that's the same as saying joining is building rapport and providing empathy. It's it's no, it's not. It's just the toe. So, Minuchin and solution—not solution, uh, solution focus. God damn it! Uh, structural family therapists, Minuchin and other structural family therapists, say that you need to be equal to the highest person in power um, to provide a leadership position. This is part of joining. So, joining not only you, it means joining the system as a part of the system, but it also means that you establish yourself as, as sort of being equal to the highest person. In power, so that's often like a parent. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, Minuchin definitely, and, and other structural family therapists were into that in terms of the, the sort of power play of of family therapy. But uh, as a family therapist myself, I've definitely been successful at um, while not necessarily being in the most powerful position. Structural family therapists join with different subsystems sometimes. So they are concentrating on joining the overall system, but they're also concentrated on joining particular parts of the system. Like they might join with the kids or they might join with the parents. And they can do this with or without the other subsystems in the room. So sometimes some structural family therapists will spend some time joining with the kids while the parents watch. And and there's some benefit to that. Um, incidentally, there's other words that bother me. I, I'm in the middle of a, a bunch of correcting a bunch of papers from students, and there's other words that people use that, that just bother me. W- uh, one word is constantly. I, 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 whenever I hear this word, I, I, I always say, this word is exaggeratory. Um, you know, people will say like, uh, the mother is constantly on the back of the kids, or, you know, the father is constantly getting angry, and it's like, that's impossible. No, no one is constantly getting angry, right? The, the you know, if you want to talk that way, fine. Uh, I'm, I'm all for common language, but the better word is frequently, right? The father is frequently getting angry. That's much more clinically sound and, and not exaggeratory. Another phrase that I'm getting really tired of reading is, I feel that blah, 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 blah. You know, I feel that my mother is triangulating my dad. It's like, you feel like that's how you, that's how you gauge your clinical perspective is you feel that way. It's, it's like just kind of your gut reaction. It's like, no, you have data and you state it. My father is triangulating my mother and here is the data that, that provides, uh, you know, backup to my claim here. Another thing I'm seeing a lot in papers is people using I as an object, you know, they'll say like, um, uh my father spent a lot of time with my sister and I and I and it's just like if you understand grammar you're just like no 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 you do not use I as an object or people using in clinical write-ups they'll use the word impossible um, instead of difficult like it's impossible for my client to listen to her husband. It's impossible for this mother to provide clear boundaries with her kids. It's like, it's not impossible it's it's just difficult for them. you know nothing's impossible, so anyways, just <laughs> so please, if you're a family therapist out there, do not use joining as rapport. use it as joining the system as becoming a part of the system. and if you ever hear other people using it wrong, feel free to be pedantic and slap them across the face. I, I would love that do that for me. So we have, so number one, we have joining the system. That's important for every structural family therapist. Number two, structural family therapists are active in session. They do not sit back and wait for things to happen. They get in there. They get, they, they take control. They do something. They don't just listen. And really you have to watch Mnuchin to fully understand what that looks like. Number three, structural family therapists use genograms. These are like family trees. Uh, but they're focused on structural family therapy concepts like boundaries and coalitions and this sort of thing. They also use what they call mapping, which is like a structural diagram. Like if, if the, if the mother and the teenage boy are at the top of the hierarchy, then you put them at the top of the diagram. And then if the father is below the mother, then you put him physically below the mother. And if, you know, it's like, and then you have boundaries, uh, Markers and stuff. You kind of have to see them. So just look up structural family therapy mapping on Google and you can see that. Um, So again, number one, we have joining. Number two, uh, structural family therapists are active. Number three, they use genograms. Number four, They use enactments. These are, this is a central technique in structural family therapy. And here's how it works. You basically ask the family to do a here and now role play of the problem. For example, you might say, show me how you tell your son how to do his chores. You know, it's like, I hear you having trouble with your kid and him doing chores. Show me how you tell him to do it. You know, have that, have a conversation about it right in front of me or show me how you parents discuss parenting decisions. So this is a way of seeing exactly the structure, exactly the behavioral sequence that families have. And you need to actually watch this. You can't just have them describe it. You can't have them come to you and say, so, you know, we're having a really hard time talking about parenting. You actually have to observe it, right? You have to see it happen. You have to see the behavioral sequence. Um, otherwise, you'll never really know what the problem is. And believe me, take it from me after 20-something years as a therapist, when you hear someone describe the way they interact with someone, you will get either just like a few percentile you know, bits of the actual interaction or you'll get none. The way people narrativize their experiences, particularly conflicts… Uh, you will find if if you 've ever been a therapist before you i hope you know this that people distort it from their own emotional place and they'll they 'll be a hundred percent convinced i've talked with you know it's it's just a common scenario where i- t- 'll talk with a conflictual couple and they 'll talk about a fight they were in and the more undifferentiated they they are the the more opposite their their narratives are they'll be like and you know and then she said this and then she's like i never said that and he's like oh my god you totally said that and she's like i never said that and it, and you know it they would put a billion dollars on the line betting that they did not say that or that they did say that well one of them's wrong and one of them's right and and then this will go on and on it'll be, every detail will be sort of fought over in this way and you know some people are just lying or manipulating but for the most part that's how they remember it it's you know memory is an emotional thing and so they think that so uh, if you as a therapist just get someone's description of something you you have you really have no idea what actually happened so you actually have to watch it happen and you know uh, you can't go to their house and actually spy on them so you have to ask ask them to do it in session and this is something that drives me crazy about um, individual counselors is that when they are talking, when they only treat individuals and they hear these individual descriptions of people, you know, someone comes in and is like, oh, my God, my husband, he did this and he did that and he did that. And it's really seductive to believe that narrative. It's very difficult unless you're really good at keeping your countertransference in line. It's really hard to say to yourself, well… My client might not be seeing this correctly. My client might be distorting the situation. I wonder what I would see if I was actually there. It's it's hard to do that. Some therapists are really good at this. Some therapists are not, and it really drives me nuts. Uh, Because uh, essentially, uh, it's just such an obvious thing, right? Of course, clients or humans are going to distort their memories, particularly around conflictual emotional things, right? But somehow, there's this whole subsection or percentile you know, sizable group of therapists who just don't understand that uh, or at least only understand it intellectually and actually don't enact that in their assessments of what people are saying. Now, this isn't to say that we're supposed to be skeptical of everything our clients say, but it is to say that if we're really going to help people, we really need to know what's really happening. We can't just take people's word for it, right? So anyway, um, Number five, we have focusing on the executive subs- subsystem by structural family therapists. Structural family therapists are very interested in the parents. They're very interested in making sure that the parents are at the top of the hierarchy, know what they're doing, are in control, are confident, have a system, um, you know, are, have clear boundaries because structural family therapists understand or believe that it all, the, the entire family stands on the strength of the executive subsystem, the parents. Um, they're often the ones who have the greatest ability to change the structure. They're often the ones who have, who are, you know, the most willing to change. And the, they're often the ones who can implement changes in between sessions and beyond therapy. Number six is structural family therapists are not interested in the past and they're only interested in the present, as I've been talking about before. They don't focus on the past. They try to change the present. And they try to set up a new structure and, that will help things work out more uh, better. <laughs> Number seven is reframing. This is the, a second concept that most family therapists under, or think they understand. They'll use this word uh, similar to joining. A lot of family therapists use, use the term joining wrong, and a lot of family therapists use the term reframing wrong. Reframing often is used uh, to as a synonym for putting a positive spin on something um, which is, you know, similar to joining, this is not what it is. Reframing is not putting a positive spin on something. It's completely misunderstood. And again, like nails on chalkboard to my ears, is a denial of the central concept of systemic thinking. So now having said that, putting a positive spin on something is fine. You know, it, you, you can, someone comes in and is just like, oh my God, um, our family is so terrible we can't even seem to, you know, conf- conflict very well. We're horrible people. And then the therapist says, like, well, you know, I've seen worse and I- I'm sure we're going to be able to see our way through this. A lot of people in family therapy will label that as a reframe. That is not a reframe. You're just giving hope. You're trying to forcefully rewrite their narrative, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You're trying to, uh, it's a sort of a forceful cognitive therapy technique and it's fine. Um, if, you, if you intuit that that's the best option to do, then do it. But that is not reframing. You are not reframing. Reframing is speaking as a therapist outwardly about your observations on the systemic process. So again, I just really want to drive this home for people. Reframing is highlighting a systemic process th- verbally by describing a process in a systemic manner. You're trying to teach the cl- the client and the family how their system operates, okay? So and that has nothing to do with putting a positive spin on something. Sometimes it happens to do that just sort of randomly, but it has nothing to do with putting a positive spin on it. And so let me give you an example. So let's say you're in session, you're seeing a family and the and the and the son talks back to the mother in session. So the son's like um, I don't need to listen to you, you know. I'm 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 almost 18. I, I don't have to listen to your shit or something. And the therapist says that as a reframe. To pay attention here. <laughs> that the therapist says, I see what's happening here in talking to the mom. He says, I see what's happening here. Your son really wants you to be strong, and he's giving you a test to see if you'll stand up to him. Isn't that interesting? So that is a sort of a classic structural family therapy Minuchin style reframe. So the frame, the 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 original frame is that the son is a jerk, that the son is a defiant jerk and he's hostile and he's he's mean and he's he's being mean to the mom. That that's the that's the original frame. The original frame is the obvious frame, which is the son is a jerk. Okay. And that's probably the family narrative. Is like, oh, th- there goes that boy again, acting like an asshole. Um, what an asshole he is. Okay. Well, f- so that's a linear perspective. Is someone's an asshole? A systemic perspective is that everyone is playing a role, and that that processes are put in place for reasons, for actually usually positive logical reasons. And so the therapist says something like if if the assessment has led them to believe this to be true by the way they they don't just say this out of nowhere it's like they would say this only if they actually thought it was true is it's like oh i see you know when your your son right now is yelling at you because he really wants you to stand up to him because he he really is looking for you to be stronger because he really you know, needs a strong mother who can stand up to everyone, including him. That's so that's what he's doing to you right now. Isn't that interesting? That is a reframe. It's a it is a way of describing something that the family does not normally see that is a systemic way of describing things, you know, or say a um, a, a parent and a kid. Are enmeshed and the, you know, mother and daughter are enmeshed and father sort of left out. And the family will say something like, um, well, you know, the, the father, he's, he's just kind of distant. He's usually just checked out. And a reframe of that would be like, um, well, he, yeah, I get it. He, he's often distant because he's, he's really pushed out of the enmeshment between you, between the mother and the daughter. Uh, there's no room for him between you know because there's there's just there's just no room for him in the enmeshment that the that the mother and daughter have so that's a reframe you're reframing it as a systemic notion and you need to build rapport and you need to join with the family before you confront in that way. And Mnuchin did this very quickly, you know, within like 10 minutes of a session, he would have joined, he would have built rapport and he would slam families with stuff like this. And again, because he had this accent, it came across to people like, well, maybe he just doesn't understand what he's saying. You know, the bluntness of what he's saying, maybe it's just because he, he, he doesn't understand English that well. And he used that, I think to his advantage. Okay. So again, number one, Structural family therapists join. They're active. Number two. Number three, they use genograms. Number four, they use enactments or, you know, they try to get people to show them exactly how the communication sequence happened. Number five, they focus on the executive subsystem in general. Number six, they focus on the present, not the past. Number seven, they reframe, uh, when they find it useful. Number eight, they're very con, they're very concentrated on first order change, or they're very concentrated on second order change as opposed to first order change. So, they want second order change. They do not want first order change. First order change is when there's a change in behavior, but the system has remained the same. So the system problem is the same, but the, um, but someone has changed. And, and a lot of therapists will misinterpret this as things getting better. But in reality, the family system has, the family system problem has, re- has been retained. So for an example, Let's say parents come into therapy and they're very lenient with their kid. And the therapist looks at this and is like, man, these parents are too lenient. So the, parent, the therapist says, I need you to be strong with the kid. I need you to have strong enough limits, stronger limits uh, for the children. And the parents say, okay. And so they change their parenting from lenient to very strict. So there's, here's a change. This is a change in, uh, to the uninitiated, to systems thinking. They're like, oh, the system has changed. But when you look deeper, you realize that the problem in the family has not changed. The problem is distance and dysfunction, and it's being upheld. The, the parenting style has changed, but the distance between all the members and the dissatisfaction between all the members has m- remained exactly the same. So second-order change would be for the whole family to change its routines, which is often much more involved and much more nuanced. The parenting style is a part of that, but it's a much less relevant part than the ongoing interactions between everyone in terms of how they uh, you know, mediate their attachment needs. I hope that makes it clear. Maybe not. Anyway, second-order change, another word for this that we often use is morphogenesis. Morphogenesis is a complicated term, but um, it's often used as sort of a synonym with second-order change. And second-order change is when a family actually changes its structure. And a uh, now a change can be good, it can be bad, it can be neutral. People often equate morphogenesis and second order change with a good change, but it isn't always good. You you can have a bad second order change. It just it all that second order change means is that the system has changed significantly. They, there's a new set of routines, and as family therapists, we're interested in trying to make a positive morphogenesis or second order change. So structural family therapists are often trying to create a second order change and novice therapists uh, regardless of where they're from are often focused on first order change and agencies are really focused <laughs> on first order change you know it's like when a therapist see you know is seeing a family or seeing an individual and they're like um i i really think you know that you should divorce your husband you know i think so that would be a change right but is it really going to change the situation? And I find a lot of therapists do that. They'll just they'll just sort of have this knee jerk reaction of just like, well, maybe if maybe if she breaks up with her boyfriend, maybe everything will be better. And it's like, well, maybe you know, if the boyfriend's completely abusive, I guess that's a start. But really, you know, people come to therapy with deeper issues than just whether or not they should be with someone or not. I mean, come on. Um, or when a therapist tries to convince a rebellious child to behave better you know it's like okay you you might succeed in that but will that actually change the problem you know you have to you have to know the overall system problem or trying to convince a parent to parent better for example i mean that might lead to a second order change but it might not or getting someone to stop drinking say they drink all the time and you want to get them to stop if you manage to get them to stop if if there's a family dysfunction that's driving the drinking then something else will happen as a result um now these aren't necessarily bad moods uh, bad bad moves obviously if someone's drinking a lot getting the helping them to not drink so much you know is likely to help but but really, you have to uh monitor the entire system because oftentimes when 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 you help one person to become less symptomatic, other people will become more symptomatic, like if you get the father to stop drinking, sometimes the spouse will start drinking or the spouse will start working too much, or the father will start working too much. Um, or let 's say you get a teen boy to stop misbehaving, well, then another child will act up. Family therapists will attest to this happening all the time i 've seen it happen all the time you know if If I focus on first order change and i and I convince you know I, I once had this family where um, there were three kids, and the oldest kid was was highly defiant, very hostile toward the parents. And the two younger kids were, were angels, which is just like great. And, you know, and so I was, I was like, it's like, isn't it interesting that we have two angels and one devil, right? And so I spent all this time on the older kid, and eventually the older kid, after about six months, started behaving better. And lo and behold, within weeks, the middle child became worse than the first child. And then we all kind of focused on that child, and then a few years later, that child calmed down, and then the third child, who had always been the baby of the family and nice, and was always extremely well behaved, like we, because we saw the pattern, we're like, huh, isn't it interesting that the, the oldest had a problem, and then the middle child had a problem, and then we, as you know, when I talked to the parents, we we're like, well, surely the youngest won't continue in that pattern because you know, they're such a they're such a doll, there's they're so nice, there's no way that that, well, lo and behold, boom. Uh, when it when it came time uh, to, for someone to be acting out, he fulfilled that role. And the idea is is that there was something deep down that was wrong or dysfunctional about the family, and someone needed to express that through rebellion in their teenage years. And if it wasn't one person, it was going to be another. So that that's what family therapists notice early on, and still notice today. Okay, so let's wrap this up with a critique of Mnuchin and of. Structural family therapy. Um, some of these critiques are shared by others and some of them are mine. Uh, one I've already basically talked about, which is that uh, Minuchin and other structural family therapists, uh, especially in the early days of structural family therapy, they seem to believe that there was really only one way a family can be functional. You know, there needs to be two parents, uh, more than one child. The grandparents need to live somewhere, but but nearby, and but not in the house. Uh, Single parents don't really work. Blended families don't really work. Poly families don't work. And this doesn't really reflect all the possible healthy structures. And in particular, this perspective marginalizes people who who don't fit neatly into these categories. Um, You know, so now – contemporary woke structural family therapists will say like, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that anymore. And, and Minuchin really never did that, you know? Uh, and you could make an argument for that, but I have absolutely seen structural family therapists operate from this, from this perspective. And I've seen just general family therapists operate from this perspective too. It's just really hard to get out of your culture, particularly if you're not used to doing so. Structural family therapy, another critique is that it's a modern theory and approach as opposed to a postmodern meaning that they uh, in its uh, certain proponents of structural family therapy particularly in the beginning gave off a vibe that they have an objective view of reality that the clinician has a objective view of what the family is and what it isn't, and what the and what's dysfunctional, and what the path towards functionality is, and would therefore become pretty prescriptive. Would be like this: you know, I've seen the problem, and I know the problem. I'm an expert. You know, it's top down, and here's what you have to do to to make it better. And um, now, do also uh, structural family therapists operate this way? No, but it definitely has that vibe, and Minuchin definitely had that vibe. Now, is that a problem? Might there's pros and cons to that. Um, so uh, I, postmodernists will be like, oh, of course that's wrong. Modernism is terrible. Object- There's no objective reality. And I, I'm fully on board with those points of view. But at the same time, uh, being married to a philosophy as opposed to what helps is not the way to go. And sometimes top down help- helps just because top down sounds bad especially in our current cultural milieu, it's not necessarily bad. We just we just have to consider that. We just have to monitor that, not overpower clients and just check in and make sure that we're actually helping our clients. If again, if top- down is helpful, do it. If top-down is not helpful, don't do it. That's that's the point. I, I always hammer this into my students is it's there's no, there's no appropriate style of therapy. There's no right and wrong, there's no rules or very few rules anyway. Um, You know, like one of the rules is don't have sex with your clients. But, you know, aside from some weird kind of behaviors like that, it's like there's not a lot of rules. uh, And you're free to do what you want to do. And the guide you should follow is helpfulness. Is it helpful? Not appropriateness or theoretically sound. It should be do what's helpful. So anyway. Um, Structural family therapists might miss the real problem. It's not super focused on attachment, for example. And so if you're really focused on hierarchy and boundaries and the processes, and you're not really mindful of attachment, then you might miss the real problem. But again, I imagine a lot of structural family therapists would say, well, that's the main point, but it's not explicit in the theory, if that makes any sense. Not like EFT. Also, there another critique that I would have is that once the structure has been established as good, the family may still have all the problems that they had before. And it's basically related to what I was saying before. And the last critique I have of structural family therapy, I th- it, I think is actually a common problem is that it, it can promote power struggles between you and the, and the client. So structural family therapy is great with Minuchin. When he, when he would do demonstrations, because the so basically, as I was talking about before, the demonstrations would be that Mnuchin would travel to, say, San Diego, and six months in advance, the local, you know, Association of Marriage and Family Therapy would be like, oh my God, Salvador Mnuchin is coming, and hundreds of people would buy tickets and blah, blah, blah. And then there would be this call for, like, well, he's looking to do a demonstration on an actual family. Does anyone in the San Diego area have a family that they'd be willing to bring into the conference? And so a bunch of people say, yeah, I, I, I have a family that I'm kind of struggling with and blah, blah, blah. And then they, yeah, I guess, get the consent forms and all that stuff, and they bring the family in. Well, how do you bring a family into a conference? Well, uh, you have to tell the, the clients. You have to be like, so, um, you know, So the, so this is me talking to a family. I'm like, so I have a great opportunity coming up and it's totally up to you. But a, uh, you know, a a very renowned figure in family therapy is coming to San Diego and he's having a conference and I want to offer this up to you as an opportunity to have a session with him. And I'll, you know, you'll meet at the conference center. You you sign consent forms. It's going to be, it's going to be filmed and people are going to watch this. People are going to be, you know, seeing it uh, on the other side and uh, of of uh, you know a one way mirror kind of situation. And it, it, how does that sound to you? And so some families will be, you know, so imagine the family that would be interested in that because I wouldn't be interested in that. I'd be like, fuck you! I'm not going to be filmed in session. That's that's awful. You know, I'm too private for that. But you know, some people are like, yeah, sure. So so they go in and they're being told that they have no idea who minuchin is right because they're not in family therapy but but they're being primed to believe that minuchin is like the freud of family therapy which he you know would often be described as and so you know they go into this session going like man this guy's a god you know and so minuchin would walk into the room all already revered and respected and kind of feared in some way. And you can kind of see that in the demonstrations that Mnuchin would walk into. And so Mnuchin walked in with power. He, he had power walking into it. And I think that that is a, you know, it's fine if that's what it's happening, but it's not necessarily the case with all families. If you're a family therapist, you know That some families don't respect you at all and you really have to earn it. And even then they never really, even when you're pretty good at doing, you know, earning respect they still don't give you respect. And so you walk into the room as a family therapist and it's just hard to do anything because no one is listening to you. No one respects you blah blah blah. And so what structural family therapists recommend is like, well, you have to, you have to get power, you know, in order to be able to do stuff, you have to establish yourself as, as a powerful leader in the session. And sometimes families won't go along with that. And if you sort of lock yourself into that power struggle, then, you know, conflicts will happen and the relationship will deteriorate and the treatment won't get off the ground. Now, again, structural family therapists, listening might say like, no, 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 we would never do that. And I commend you for that. But I've seen videos of non-mnuchin structural family therapists who give off a very top-down, very authoritarian vibe because, again, when you, I think, sort of distort the central tenets of structural family therapy, you know, some people can be trained in structural family therapy and walk away with the notion that there's one way a family should be. That the therapist needs to basically force the family to do that, and the th- and the family therapist knows the right way to get there, and that most families are dysfunctional and blah 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 blah. And so, uh, I've seen structural family therapists do demonstrations, either you know filmed or otherwise, in which they they just they have a very bad attitude, in my opinion, and the clients detect it. They're just like, geez, I think this therapist is judging me a lot. So I. I think that um, uh, that's a valid critique and it's something I think structural family therapists can avoid, but um, I think it requires some doing given some of the central tenets within structural family therapy technique and theory. Anyway, oh, okay, so boy, that was a long episode. How do you feel? Um, I, my brain is fried because it can only do so much thinking um, uh, uh, I can only do so much thinking. <laughs> so that's my deep dive on Salvador Minuchin and structural family therapy. Let me know what you think. Did you like this episode? Let me know because I hope you did. Well, that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because, and have good structures, you know, have helpful structures and help other people with their structures because, and their routines. And remember, Joining is not equal rapport and re- reframing does not mean putting a positive spin. And don't use the word don't use the phrase I feel in your clinical assessments. Don't use I as an object. Don't use the word constantly as a word for frequently and don't use the word impossible when difficult is a better word to use because you deserve it. <laughs>